Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. We are in no position to be able to defend ourselves in any way whatsoever. Ireland is defenseless. Every time that it happens, we have to talk about how the good men feel. Help us. Without G backing us, putting it on the air and telling the people how important it is, then it wouldn't have gone anywhere. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818-969696. Extra WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Good morning, Fiona in with you today. We have some good news. This time yesterday, I was speaking on the air to Georgina and her mum who lived in Ballincollig had a bit of a surprise when she woke up on Saturday morning and discovered that a camper van had been parked outside the driveway and was blocking her car in and she was unable to get out and Georgina was saying that they had made several attempts to try and get in touch with the tourists but to no avail but she got back in touch with us yesterday evening to say that the camper van had been moved so success there for uh, Georgina and her family and also yesterday um, I called out an appeal that had come in to us from a mother who had been in McCroom in the, the Castle Park in McCroom with her little boy. He had autism and he had made a toy gun out of wood in school and he was so proud of it and he brought it everywhere with him and he had left it down when they were there and um, he went off, forgot it. When he came back it was gone and um, somebody had said they had seen two little boys taking the gun um, and they were hoping that they might be able to get back in touch with um, the family who had the gun or indeed anyone who had the gun and we were informed last night that um, the gun uh, that the uh, person had been in touch with the family and the gun will be handed over to the little boy today and he's absolutely delighted with that so great news all around today now coming up on the show this morning I'll be chatting to a man who worked in Ireland's biggest prisons for 30 years and he's got really fascinating stories to tell I'm really looking forward to chatting him later on 
and he's worth sticking around for. And if you're considering doing up your house, then stay tuned because I'll be chatting and to Jerry's Designs. She's going to be getting giving me all the latest trends for this year for if you want to do up your house. And I'll be speaking to a young Cork woman who's competing in two major motorsport events over the next week. So all that and more. And if you want to get in touch about anything that we're talking about on the show, it's 0818 96 96 96 is the phone number. And you can also text or WhatsApp 0833 96 96 96. Now, uh, we've been hearing so much lately about long delays at Dublin Airport and flights being cancelled and baggage being lost. Well, today, the representatives of the DAA and Aer Lingus will appear before the Oireachtas Transport Committee to face questions on the recent travel chaos. And joining me now is Senator Jerry Bottomer, who is a member of that Oireachtas Committee. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning, Fiona. Uh, Jerry, um, what kind of questions are going to be put to the DAA and Aer Lingus this morning? Well, this morning, Fiona, is an important opportunity for us as a committee to, first of all, engage with Dublin Airport Authority in to understand their response to the initial, if you may remember that, that tremendously difficult and awkward and awful <clears throat> first weekend in, of, of travel. Uh, and then secondly, to see what they've done since. <clears throat> and then secondly, in tandem with that, is to look at the issue of Aer Lingus, which is <clears throat> the airline that is responsible for the majority of flights that are cancelled uh, or, or late uh, coming in and out of Ireland, um, in particular around Dublin Airport. Uh, and then the third piece is the whole issue uh, of the baggage and, and the ground handling, because, as you know, the, the whole piece around hub connectivity and, and baggage and luggage lost in transit uh, has spiralled out of control. Uh, Jerry, some of the flights that were cancelled, especially over the last week, um, they were no fault of the DA or Aer Lingus even because um, it was a, an issue at Heathrow Airport. Yes, correct. And, 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 and there has been, to be fair, uh, a, a level of, 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 if you like, resilience challenging peace for Aer Lingus and other airlines, uh, not because of, 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 of the, you know, their own fault. It's because of the whole air traffic control. It's because of COVID uh, illness. It's because of, of perhaps overcapacity. And, and part of that is the whole, you know, need to find answers around this, the coming autumn and winter mm. season and planning for next summer, Fiona, because I, I understand and we all appreciate that post-COVID there was going to be that pent-up demand. And nobody, I think, to be fair, could have foreseen, could have foreseen the significant volume of people travelling to the level they did. But that then presents a question, because you've raised a very good point here, around Heathrow, around Manchester, around, you know, um, Amsterdam or, or wherever, because now our, our, our airports are becoming points of hub connectivity. Um, and, and so therefore there's a question now in terms of the resilience piece around the autumn and winter. But in the short term, it, it, for Aer Lingus's perspective, I, I believe they have to answer questions about how they communicated with people, mm. how they posted and informed people. And, and if you think about this, we're an island nation. The, the vast majority of Aer Lingus's business uh, is transatlantic, perhaps from an Irish perspective, and therefore the first impression of Ireland from, from tourists coming in from North America has not been a good one. 
Yeah, because you and mentioned there about communication, that, and we had a, a young girl on the on the show here about two weeks ago who was stuck in Amsterdam herself and her family, and they were due to fly back to Cork, and the flight had been cancelled, and they had no communication. They were trying to get through to Erlingas for hours um, until eventually they got through, and they had to uh, to travel, I think, to Brussels and then to London and then back to to Cork. Um, but her point was the fact that the communication was so poor that they hadn't been told in advance, and they only found out when they arrived at the airport. I mean, like that kind of carry on can't really, as you say, like for Irish passengers, but as well as that for, for tourists and for people with connecting flights, it just, it's not, um, it's not good customer service. No, and we've seen too many passengers left stranded or affected by flight cancellations across not just Europe, but transatlantic. Um, and I accept that there was a global issue with aviation, but at the same time, Fiona, Aer Lingus management know they have a certain number of staff in a given day. There's a standby staff and it's the, it's the putting in place uh, of an alternative plan that we haven't heard about, we haven't seen. And then, I mean, I can share with you emails that I've got from people who work in Aer Lingus, who've travelled with Aer Lingus, who are completely frustrated, completely, um, you know, underwhelmed by the response and by the working conditions and there's that piece around it that we need to see from Aer Lingus because as I say as I said to you we are an island nation Aer Lingus and Ryanair are our two major you know carriers of people in and out of the island um, and and then the question that we have to ask Aer Lingus is in terms of and, and then feeding into a wider piece around the whole issue of our aviation policy is, is the need for, for regional airports to be supported like Cork. And there's two parts to this part. One is the government, you know, aviation policy, how we can shift the balance towards the regional airports. And then the whole issue around how, how airports like Cork Airport can continue to benefit uh, from the regional airports programme. Yeah, because uh, I was where, actually where, just going to ask you there about Cork Airport, because when we spoke about the chaos at Dublin Airport at the start of the summer, we had lots of people contacting the show saying, why can't some of those um, flights be diverted um, and, and run out of Cork instead of Dublin? Well, that's a matter for the the airlines predominantly, but there is a need for us to incentivize and, and, and to encourage, for example, in Cork Airport, and we should pay tribute this morning to the staff at Cork Airport for the way in which they, they, they deal with customers, passengers every day. There's a very positive, by and large, you know, experience going through Cork Airport. It, it, it's, a, it's a brilliant one. Um, and, and to Royal Driscoll and the staff up there, we should say thank you. So, yes, so the, part of what we need to do as a committee, I believe, is in the autumn planning for next winter and next summer is that as part of our aviation policy that we would encourage government and that's why I, I, I welcome that Minister Michael McGrath was in Cork Airport a couple of weeks ago to meet with the staff there to understand that for Cork Airport there needs to be a continuation uh, of the economic support around regional airports programme to be able to have route retention, route development uh, to attract you know, airport charges to entice uh, your air, your airlines to come and use Cork Airport, and then also I think the whole piece around you know uh, marketing and support of how the people of 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 up further towards Port Leash and back around Munster can use Cork as their airport as opposed to going to Dublin, and then the part around Aer Lingus that I think we need to you know have a conversation with them about is we saw in a limited way that Norwegian succeeded in transatlantic 
And why couldn't we have a transatlantic flight from Cork to New Jersey, Boston or New York, as an example, mm. because the airplanes that we use now are, are sufficient to be able to take off and land from Cork Airport. Jerry, another issue that has uh, come up today in the news is the fact that um, a second Dáil chamber is being considered to make politics more family friendly. But you have reservations about the viability of this plan. Well, my reservation is very simple in, in the context of, of the institutions that are that are the, the houses of the Oireachtas or Parliament. How will it work? I think, first of all, we all recognise that we need to make our Parliament more family friendly, more people friendly, uh, and that's not because of members. It's because of the it's, the, it's, it's due to the staff uh, who need to be, you know, not going home at twelve o'clock or one o'clock in the morning um, and, and sitting late. But it's about how we can make it a better, and more efficient, and a more streamlined parliament. And, and I'm all for that. I, I just wonder how you could have a parallel session in in Chamber One and Chamber Two uh, in terms of the primacy of, of what's going on. And, and I think our, our standing orders need to be reflected upon and changed. But equally, you know, we've we've seen some changes to our, our parliament in terms of voting blocks, in terms of sitting days, uh, and perhaps we need to look at how we can do our, our, our business better. I, I remain unconvinced about a second chamber, but I'm not against the idea, let me add. Mm. I think it's one that we look at. Maybe, and this would be unpopular amongst members, should we look at sitting on a Monday rather than sitting later? But that means that parliamentarians are away from their constituency and as you know all politics is local and there will be mm. resistance pushback from that. I think the other way we need to look at it is maybe we should look at introducing more, you know, you have a plenary week, you have a committee week uh, and, and, and having, you know, a different model perhaps uh, and looking at the way in which the practice is carried out in the European Parliament or in other parliaments but I'm not against the idea. I just don't know how a parallel you know, session could work and how it would 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 it be constitutionally in order? So that's why I think we need to look at different matters in terms of teasing it out. But the one thing I think we're all agreed upon is that our parliament uh, needs to be more family friendly uh, as opposed to the way it's being operated at the moment. And that's something we have to look at in the whole rather than just saying, you know, it's a, a second chamber needed. You know, should we sit earlier in the week in terms of a Tuesday, it's, it's half two. Mm. Should cabinet meetings change to a different time? You know, and, and, and all of these things, I think one of the things we did see that was successful was the hybrid model in terms of committee work in COVID where you could have private meetings in, 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 in online extensively or exclusively rather, whereas you couldn't have today, like, for example, I can't stay in Cork to, have a, to, to, to participate in the meeting today. I have to drive to Dublin mm. to participate. I wonder, could that be changed so that we could look at different ma- means of, of doing business? But I think the main point is we should always be open to making our parliament more people-friendly and more family-friendly. Before I let you go, Jerry, um, a call has just come in here and I want to know what you think of this. It's what Senator Buttimer is saying, good, we all agree, great points. Uh, but what he is, miss- or he is missing the elephant in the room, Dublin Airport is in charge of Cork Airport and the company will always try and make Dublin Airport even better and treat Cork as a regional bolt-on. What's your reaction to that? No, that's not true. And we've all come on a journey around the Holy Ship separation when we had the new terminal. What we've seen through involvement with Dublin Airport Authority is that there has been an economies of scale in terms of investment in Cork, new runway, new 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 you know fire station, substation, electricity station, different electrical works in the runway, different ability to, to be able to fund. So what we need to look at now is, on the board of an airport authority, what we need to have first of all is a Cork representative 
on the board of an airport authority. We had a wonderful, uh, you know, worker director from Cork. We had, a, we had a wonderful representation from Cork. That's not there at the moment. We need to see that being brought back. I, from my experience, uh, the board and the management of Dublin Airport Authority and in particular under Dalton Phillips who is now leaving, but under Dalton Phillips working with Niall McCarthy in Cork Airport, you had a very strong emphasis on Cork. Uh, mm. We've seen that structural separation hasn't worked so well for Shannon in my opinion. I would not like to see Cork going on its own route. Yeah. Because, you I hear know, what you're saying, Jerry, but like in the past, um, here on this show, other listeners have made the point that company promotional activities will always be geared to getting flights into Dublin to build up economies of scale. You know, I think you that's the perception that. that a lot of the listeners that is perception. have. Yeah. And, and, and there's an element of, there's, there's, there's a part element in that that the Dublin airport attracts because it's the capital city, it's the biggest airport. But in saying that, what we could all do is is to market and to sell Cork Airport by using Cork Airport more, um, and and by going after you know different parts of the, of of Ireland to say from Portlaoise down, Cork Airport really is your airport, um, and it, it is about ensuring that yes, Cork gets its fair share from Dublin Airport Authority, that Cork Airport is able to manage in terms of marketing, promoting, and and he goes back to my fundamental point, Fiona, the whole issue of being able to route incentivize route retention so to negotiate with, with the airlines to see Cork as not being as you said a bolt on mm. but rather it is a, an airport that can be and is you know a counterfall to Dublin in terms of attracting your short haul and that's why sorry today around Aer Lingus the peace with Emerald in the short haul flights back to the UK you know like Bristol or, or Glasgow or, or other parts that have been you know taken away in terms of some of the flights to mainland Europe need to be looked at but okay. certainly from my perspective Cork is better within the EA than outside Okay, brilliant. Senator Jerry Buttimer, he is a member of that Oireachtas Transport Committee that is going to be putting questions to the DAA and Aer Lingus today about the, the reasons for all of the travel chaos that we've seen over the last couple of months and their plans to try and um, prevent travel chaos like that from happening into the winter months. Let us know what you think. Have you flown at a Dublin airport? What kind of an experience did you have? Have you flown at a Cork airport? And what kind of an experience did you have with that? 0818 Tom says Cork Airport should be used for more European and UK flights. Cork's runway is 7,000 feet. It needs to be at least 8,500 feet for an A321neo to go to the USA. It was barely adequate for the Norwegian operation, but the DAA definitely runs Cork. Thanks for that information, Tom. And Kate has been in touch to say, I was speaking to someone recently and they've said they will never use Dublin Airport again. They will only go out if it's from Cork Airport and Kate, I can absolutely see where that person is coming from. Uh, we flew with the kids this year and um, we, uh, like Dublin Airport just was a no no for that and uh, we hadn't flown in a couple of years but we really wanted to have a seamless and smooth uh, flight as possible and um, we looked at where we could go from Cork rather than, um, you know, looking at the, des- the destination as the first option. Um, if there's anybody else 
else out there who feels the same way about Cork if they wouldn't even consider going out of Dublin Airport they just look at what's available from Cork and go from there but would you like to see more options from Cork Airport you can get in touch and let us know 0818 96 96 96 or 0833 96 96 96 Now we have been speaking about the Bus Connects plan for Cork and we've had people um, giving out about the plan and the, the impact it's going to have on um, Douglas um, we, ha- we were speaking yesterday to a couple of people who were disappointed that the plans um, include a bridge over the Mangala in Douglas and it looks like it's going to affect the wildlife there and Don um, has been in touch Don um, is from Impact Our Community Matters Don it is also going to impact on wildlife in the Holly Hill area yeah, hi Fiona, how are you? Hiya Don, how are you? Yeah, that's right, I was listening to that lady yesterday, Nina, was it on yeah. was the girl's name, and uh, yeah, from what she's saying, it, it, it's a beautiful area, you know, that they mm. want to, to rip up, well, they want to put a bridge over, but the impact of that with the, the construction that's going to take place there. Yeah, and they have to rip to up trees a lot of to, to build it. So, they do, yeah. and and what we see above here on the, the Holly Hill to City route uh, from Bus Connects, is that they're doing much the same here, is that uh, they're taking away over 62 mature trees. Now, the original master plan was that they were going to have a boulevard running mm-hmm. all the way up through Harvey Road and Ocmahini. It sounds very fancy, I know. Yeah. But, you know, that was the intention from the master plan going back to 2011. And, you know, some of these trees up here, you know, they're over 40 years old. So now, you know, they want to rip them up and basically cut them down, you know. And I think that will have an impact as well because... You know, are they going to do it in the, when the birds are nesting, when they're in nesting season, uh, you know, mm. and again, they said that we're going to replant trees, you know, but they're only all proposals. Yeah. You know, from what you see, when you look at the maps on it, it's proposed. Everything's proposed. But with a proposal, it doesn't mean that they're going to do it. You know, and, and we can Don, see that with green spaces. At, yeah, like from looking at the plan yourself, do you think that they could do what they're planning on doing without ripping up these old trees? I think they can, uh, Fiona, yes, I think, because what they, if you turn left on Harbourview Road to go down to Hollymount, there's a beautiful green area, a big long stretch of a green area with, I'd say there's over 30 mature trees there alone, you know, but they can put a cycle lane through the middle of them. Now, we met with uh, the NTA and Bus Connects there last Monday, or last Tuesday, sorry, the 19th, yeah. on a team's call, myself and one or two, we have a, a working group formed, we met with residents uh, above in Nocknahini and the Holly Hill area, so we got a team's call anyway with the, the, the head guys in NTA and we put this to them, you know, uh, but they were saying but we're going to replant, and we were saying well you know, you're only proposing to do it you know, and you mightn't follow through, so they had open days yesterday, so group, the, the working group went down yesterday, met with them, in relation to green spaces, and uh, and again the CPOs that they were, they were pushing forward, that they are pushing forward with CPOs, and when we were saying that you're tearing away the green spaces, the alternative would be in a green space to put the cycle track. Now, we're going to have cycle tracks, mm. and they said that yesterday to us. You know, look, lads, you got to suck up a bit of it, and we're, look, we understand that. You know, we're all about, you know, public transport, you know, but run the cycle track through the green area rather than cutting them down, and it'd be far nicer, far mm. more environmental, you know, rather than just coming in, getting the chance out, but we see in other parts of Europe are where they come in, they take the whole tree out and they replant it. And doesn't it seem like an awful waste of effort and a disturbance of wildlife to, to 
to cut down all of these trees and replant them when they could just leave them there? They could leave them there. There is a walk around. Now, we're putting solutions to them, you know, because uh, they guaranteed us. The head fella, now, in fairness to him, you know, he listened to us yesterday and we put it to him like, you know, ye were looking at Google Maps. There was nobody in the area and he admitted that. He shrugged his shoulders, you know, in acceptance that there was a lot of work done and it's the same in the Mangala where they were looking at Google Maps. Nobody went into the Mangala. So he actually admitted yesterday in a meeting to you that they drew up this plan by looking at Google Maps rather than going out, boots on, out into the community, going to the area itself, having a look at what was actually there and, you know, drawing up the plan from that. So it was all done from Google Maps. Yeah, there was an American company involved in it at the start. Now, it, this is 12 months in now, Fiona, because we asked him, when did you start this project? When did you start all this bus connects here in Cork? And he mm. said 12 months ago. So they'd done it during COVID. You know what I mean? So yeah. there was people working from home. We were advised to work at home, which we did. Some of us were working because of our, the nature of our job. Yeah. But with, with the DNTA guys, they were working from home. Let's be clear about that. And they, because we asked them, where are you knocking Haney? Oh, 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 yeah, I've seen it all right, he said. You know, but did, okay. did you survey the area? Because we asked him about this. But, you know, and that's what we, that's from Google Maps. And as I said, he shrugged his shoulders to say, yeah, maybe that was the case. And, you know, we know. But uh, they are going, they're coming in, taking away the green areas because we we have very little green areas above. Now, the Mangle is fortunate because they have a beautiful area there. Again, when you go to Nash's Boreen, of where there was supposed to be a, a regional park, and they'll yeah. rezone that land now for housing. So we're being taken away from green spaces, you know. We're, we're, I don't know if we allowed green spaces up there, but look, that's another conversation. But I think that with DNTA is that a lot of it was done on Google Maps. And I where suppose, we see it now is that... Um, Don, like the main concern for people now in Holly Hill is that they're going to rip up these trees. They are saying that they're going mm. to replant, but you're afraid that it's going to affect the wildlife anyway in the area. Yeah. And I suppose we're trying to increase the amount of green spaces in Cork um, and you're afraid that this plan is just going to take away a lot of the green spaces rather than it, it, increase It will, them. of course. Yeah. Uh, it will, of course, and when we see the environmental side of it, is that, you know, why take away the green area? It doesn't make sense. It really doesn't make sense mm-hmm. to us and uh, and to other areas across the city. It doesn't make sense either of where they want to take it away. You know, when you look at Jory O'Sullivan Park here in Granabar, it's the only park here in the north side at the moment. You have one in Farnery, a smaller park, but for that amenity there in Jory O'Sullivan Park, again, they want to rip up, push the fence back, you know, because it's council land so they can do as they wish there. And take away, and they, those, there's cedar trees down there, a slow growing tree, you know, and 40, 50 years, those trees are there, and they want to cut them down. And they, they're not obviously a big tree like that you can't move, but to cut it down and rip it down, it's it's absolutely bananas. And I, we we were thinking, we, we, we're thinking that, you know, the alternative, and we're pushing the alternatives to them. Now we're hoping that he guaranteed us that they would come up, that they would meet to us. So we were saying, look, okay, we're not going to have a lot of people there we're, and we'll walk around with you and we'll show you the green areas that we need, that we need preserved. You know, 
I suppose what we need to do is find the rare slug yeah. and put it into Nocnihini and you know, but you know, Brands. with the Mangala and with the other areas, it's 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 mindless. It's, it's absolutely it crazy. And it's an ongoing issue I think that we're going to be definitely covering for some time. Don, thank you very much for bringing us up to speed on the concerns of people in Holly Hill that the trees are going to be pulled out up there as well for this Bus Connects plan, even though um they, they do look like they will be replaced. Uh, we were speaking earlier to um Senator Jerry Buttimer about the disturbances at uh, Dublin Airport and about um, the possibility of getting more flights out of Cork Airport and Craig has been in touch via WhatsApp with a voice note. Hi Fiona if they provided the flights in Cork Airport people would come. If you don't have the flights then they can't come. We only have flights to Birmingham normally once a day and returning back at an awkward time. Dublin has four or five flights a day to Birmingham and they're also a lot cheaper than out of Cork. That's for sure. Thank you for that, Greg. And if anybody else has any experiences or comments that they'd like to share, it's and they want to send us a voice note, it is, of course, 0833 96 96 96. Now, the Joint Committee on Health this week recommended a ban on all flavours added to e-cigarettes in an effort to stop young people from taking up the habit. But Dr. Garrett McGovern, you believe they're focusing on the wrong thing. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, yes, I do, because I think the first, the first line, really, in any regulatory measures to protect young people should be an age restriction. And that's been absent so far with electronic cigarettes. So I would have liked to have seen that happen. I mean, that should have happened from the beginning, in my opinion. Mm. My problem, I suppose, with flavour, ban is, is the flavours seem to be, if you look at kind of the research, research done in San Francisco recently, where... They had a flavour ban over there and it actually increased the number of teens who were smoking and that's, that's a worry. But really we're, we're focusing probably on the wrong thing because smokers who are trying to quit, it's a very, very hard habit to actually crack and many people have tried lots of different things, um, you know, nicotine replacement therapy, conventional nicotine replacement therapy and, you know, CBT and psychotherapy, etc. And for a lot of these people who've uh, tried electronic cigarettes, they, they seem to work for them. Um, and flavours are very, very popular among people trying to quit. Yes, uh, young people might be attracted towards flavours, but the numbers, you know, that are actually using electronic cigarettes is still relatively low. Mm. We don't want young people using electronic cigarettes. Of course we don't, but we don't want them using a lot of other things either, and we certainly don't want them smoking. And really the number smoking, in other words, teen initiation to cigarettes is still far too high. So I think if you'll excuse the pun, we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Mm. The, the likelihood is, in my opinion, and from the research I have read, is that if we ban flavours, we will probably um, result in an increase in our smoking rates. And we're trying to get to a, a stage in by 2037, whether we'll get there or not, I don't know, of a fro- smoke-free Ireland. I hope we do, mm. but I, I don't think this is the right way to go. Like Judging by um, some of the research that's been carried out into this, it would appear that a lot of young people don't necessarily just take up vaping, but they're more likely to take up smoking. And then vaping is used as a tool to help people quick quit smoking so um, do you know are we supposed to be trying to focus on getting teenagers to not smoke in the first place that's absolutely right you've hit the nail on the head that's really where we need to get at Um, smoking is devastating 6,000 deaths a year in this country a lot of smoking related illnesses like emphysema worsening asthma um, and obviously the risk of lung cancer not to mention all the cardiovascular risks that come with it we need to absolutely pull out all the stops to try and get people to stop 
smoking who are already smoking and stop people initiating. And let's be straight about this. Most people who start smoking usually do it in their teens when they're young. Um, and that's a real worry. We really, really need to concentrate on, on stopping people smoking and, and really electronic cigarettes, without a shadow of a doubt, are very popular. They're used by uh, in and around 200,000 people in this country. And the vast majority of those are trying to give up cigarette smoking. So I don't think we should put barriers in the way of those people trying to quit. And like, you know, just from your own experience, do you see many young people just starting to vape because they like the taste of it? Well, I don't treat under 18s um, in, in my own okay. clinical practice, so I don't see young people kind of that age. Um, I, I, I don't see a huge amount of young people. I mean, there's no doubt there are young people. Of course, there are who are below the age of 18 vaping. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're doing it because that's what it's, it's kind of a rite of passage for, for many kids. They try things, they become fads, they become popular. I would say this, and I mean, this is an unpopular opinion, but... You know, if it was a case that people were vaping and they weren't smoking, kids, I mean, people below the age of 18, that's still, that's still a big gain in my, in my eyes. But we don't, of course we don't want uh, children vaping. But I have to say it's far safer, and that's what all the research tells us, uh, far, far safer than uh, tobacco smoking. Are there, da- are there dangers from vaping? Are, we know the dangers from smoking, but what about vaping? That's a very good Good question. I mean, vaping has been around. It's actually been around a lot longer than people think, but in its current form um, and in terms of its, obviously the technology has got more sophisticated. It's been around nearly 20 years. And I have to say, I, I, I'm not seeing, I don't know anybody who's seeing kind of what I call a, a vaping causing illness. Now, there has been, you know, uh, reports and papers of batteries exploding. That's a technological issue. It's not related to the actual device itself. So, I'm not seeing them, I have to say. And, and, and one of the things I, I am seeing a lot of is patients um, that I treat who switch to vaping, who are attending a, you know, a, a specialist, um, you know, a, a chest specialist. And, you know, on all the measures, because they're away from smoking, they're, they're improving, you know, their peak flows and their, their, their airways and all that sort of stuff is, is, is really, and their breathing and the, the experience they have away from cigarettes. So I, I don't see a huge amount. I mean, I know a lot of people say, oh, we just don't know um, what happens in 20 years. Yeah. I, 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 that's all fair enough. I, I, I suppose I, like people will yeah. say oh, when people started smoking cigarettes many, many years ago, mm. they didn't know the effects, the harmful effects of it. Maybe it's going to be the same with vaping. Yeah, I, I can't see it in the sense mm. that whatever the harms are of vaping, and I don't, you know, they don't, like I say, they're around 20 years. We're not seeing emergency departments and GP surgeries overrun with vaping problems. I mean, I have to just be honest about that. We are obviously seeing an awful lot of that with cigarette smoking and uh, you know the idea that something's going to happen 20 years time. if I was talking to one of my patients and they said look uh, I just don't know um, I, I would ask them the next question do you think you'll continue to smoke I said well I can't I tried everything else I said well mm. try vaping because it's far safer than smoking we know that from the Royal College of Physicians Public Health England it's at least 95% safer than smoking that's what the research is telling us so why why are we so sceptical because if you're Smokers are quite, you know, easily influenced by by uh, any any decision that would mean, um, uh, uh, you know, to I suppose to validate continue smoking, right? Because it's very hard to give it up. They want to give it up. Many people want to give it up, but they can't give it up. They just mm-hmm. can't because the addiction is so heavy. Um, and if you say to somebody, as as our patients have experienced to me, they said, "Look, I talked to a doctor, and they said that I'm no better off using vaping than I am smoking." Now, that's just patently untrue. That is not that is not good medical advice to give to a patient that is just untrue i mean if we're going to be honest about this debate we we need to give good good advice to people and it needs to be based on solid evidence 
Brilliant. Dr. Garrett McGovern, addiction specialist, thank you for bringing us up to speed on that. If anybody has been vaping and they want to share their experience of it with us, 0818 96 96 96. Report by Bernardo's, which is out today, shows that many poor parents will be forced to go without or cut back on essentials to pay for back to school costs. The survey puts the basic cost of sending a child to secondary school for the first time at €814, Euro, and that covers school books, uniforms, digital and classroom resources and voluntary contributions. Huge amount of pressure on parents. And Joseph Byrne, uh, you have been appealing for people to give you um, back to school um, things like copy books and, and pens and pencils. And you're now having a back to school party. Uh, just tell me about that. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Fiona. Um, very much big demand, Fiona, this year. I'm, I mean, on data from calls and loads of stuff. Now, Dharma's has been to Dell House, maybe today, a thousand euros worth of stuff from the book station. A gentleman came in the other day handing me a thousand euros straight into the book station. I told mm. him to fill it up and into Dell House. So it's coming in and, you know, people can keep coming. But Fiona, before I tell you about the party, if you don't mind, a gentleman phoned me last night, a Sean Murphy from Energy Glazing, and, and donated me 30 back-to-school kits for primary school oh, kids. Oh, that's fantastic. That well was done fantastic. to them. Yeah, And now what brilliant. we're doing now, Fee, is we're going to do um, a free, well, I don't like the word free, uh, uh, a Instead of a schoolie, instead of a hoolie, it's going to be a schoolie. We're going to have a party in the salon. Oven Flannery is a party. Then cutting hair over, no, sorry, Oven Flannery, yeah, having the crack. Um, food, the whole lot, entertainment. And then over to the salon, three, hair, three haircuts for the day. And personally, a fun day just before they go back yeah. to school and have the hair done fresh and the whole lot. So anyone out there that needs to contact the salon or contact ourselves. Yeah, because um, I suppose I know it's really important to get all of those back to school items that you are collecting, but it's also important to give them a bit of a, a joy before they start school as well, especially for the parents if they've been so stressed out trying to to afford back to school. And that's my plan, Fiona. People even saying to me, you're collecting early for the schools. I didn't. I wanted I want the parents to be able to relax during the summer knowing they have, they have what what they need for the kids going back to school and then as I say like like these the part we have just great fun people are coming into the first morning a little bit nervous and anxious and I said Jesus don't be at all this is a fun day we're all part of you know the planet together we, you mm. know we look after each other and it was amazing and and Colette from Middle House said everyone came back she said literally said and it's not a place to see a lot of smiles absolutely grinning and Joe you're looking for people to help out as well with balloons and face painting balloons a bit of crack like that And but you know what I'm looking for now Fiona is there's going to be such a demand I'm looking for voluntary hairdressers that I come out and give a few hours on the day Okay. A, a few barbers or just to give my girls a bit of a break because it is ongoing all the time we're talking about maybe four sections of eight sections all the time clip 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 mm. and you know and then you're bringing the kids back to the party and bring another eight kids over we could have ended up to 60 or 70 at this stage you know what I mean so it's yeah. a lot so if there's anyone out there and I'd love to get someone that could do nails Fiona that would be brilliant especially because don't be all you know there'd be some teenagers there maybe and just have someone that could do nails if there's anyone out there would do that for us Okay so you're looking for somebody you're looking for volunteers to help out with hairdressing barbering and nails in particular and balloons and face painting and just balloons. creating Absolutely. a party atmosphere on the day yeah, when is the day? Fiona. Sorry, Joe. Um, the 22nd, it's a Monday, the 22nd of August. August. So it'll be about okay. a week before they go back to school. Fabulous. Which I think it's good. That man, Flanners are going to supply food and 
you know, the crack that opened up the marquee again, so they're yeah. brilliant. Um, John and Pat over there, planners are amazing. They give us the marquee a couple of times a year, and there's loads of space over there, Fiona, so there's good out atmosphere. You should call over. I will, Joe. If I'm in the area, I'll call in, yeah. definitely. Thank you so much. Air Great course, work. Fiona. If I get me, yeah, I could badly do with that. All right, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, thanks very much, and best of luck. And if anybody wants to get in touch with you, if they can volunteer a couple of hours to do some hair or nails or just some entertainment. Back to Bus Connects. Uh, Councillor Mick Nugent, good morning. Good morning, Fiona. How are you? I'm not too bad, Mick. Uh, thanks for joining us on the Opinion Line this morning. Now, you um, suggested at the Bus Connects briefing that perhaps the grounds of St Mary's Health Campus could be used. Yeah, I was I was up there yesterday at the briefing and um, myself and Kenny Collins and we were talking to Don and some of the other residents on Harvey Road. Like, so... Like we're, we're we're supporting the residents there, absolutely. But no, yeah, I suggested to um, some of the people there from the NTA could they maybe they say Mary's Health Campus um, could be an option if you want to maybe for the bicycle lanes and bus lanes. Um, the campus had been earmarked already, and it, I think it's still the case for a true road. Eventually, you know, mm. you come in off Baker's Road, and you'd come out then by the roundabout by Terence Maxweeney School and the former Holly Hill Inn. Um, so I think I think it's an idea that could be looked at and it might it might just might negate the the issue of CPOing and interfering with people's properties on Harvey Road, Fiona, you know. So yeah. I think it could be worth looking at, you know. Yeah, because I think a lot of people are very worried about this plan, but I suppose at this stage now this is the reason why they're having this these information events is to yeah. take on board the concerns of the public and go back and look at the plan then. That's it, that's it. And it had been looked at. Um, they told me yesterday they had considered doing that. Um, yeah. And look, it could be handy for people who want to go up to St. Mary's Health Campus as well. Um, and you just control one side out the other. Eventually, you now the roundabout by the Holly Hill will go eventually and that be signalised. Um, you have the 202 and the 202A. So one of the routes that goes up um, Cortland Drive, Kilmore Road. So that can still be the case. So um, I think it's definitely something they should look at. I made that mm. point yesterday. I'm going to be making that point um, again because I think the plan as it stands won't work. You know, I just don't mm. think it's going to get um, the support of the community in Harvey Road. They've organised there. They're doing meetings there and they're up there yesterday and they'll be meeting um, again, you know, affecting 70, 75 properties. Um, Fiona, in fairness to you, you've covered the issues there in the past in terms of... The, we're trying to achieve traffic calming measures um, on Harvey Road. And then they're talking yeah. about adding, you know, two cycle lanes, two bus lanes and traffic lanes. Um, I think Dan called it, previously said it, like a super highway and it's hard yeah. to disagree with that yeah. interpretation you know I suppose you know in fairness to them they are trying to draw plans that will um, increase bus activity and you know make um, public transport more accessible for people yeah, yeah that's true look, that's true and look we have in the 202 and 202A we have a very good bus service as it is um, on Harvey Road you also have the Cork Connects service going down Mali Hill to Little Island, Apple have their own coaches as well. So you'd wonder, you know, how more how many more buses you need. Um mm. no, they're saying they're still looking to knock a few minutes off off the off the journey. So I suspect they'll want to keep the have your adoption, you know, straight yeah. run maybe, but I you know, in the interests of 
community support and other options. I think maybe the health campus might be something just for the bus lane, maybe just for the cycle lanes. Um, I don't think it'd be a massive disruption to the to plan to, to look at that, Fiona, you know. Okay. We'll have to just wait and see what happens now over the coming months. <laughs> Councillor Mick Nugent, thanks for joining us on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Yesterday I was talking about uh, wedding prep and one of the things that came up in the conversation was uh, getting tattoos removed, brides getting tattoos removed. And uh, I noticed today in one of the papers... um, a dad, now this is over in England, but um, he kept forgetting his Tesco club card every time he went to go shopping and he was sick of missing out on the savings. So he got the code, the Tesco club card code, tattooed, the QR code tattooed on his arm. So now he's never, ever going to miss out on the savings. All he has to do is stick out his arm and uh, the, 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 the code is scanned and he gets his points. Um, is he an absolute genius or is he just mad <laughs> would you get a, ta- a Tesco club card uh, QR code tattooed on your arm or if you were to get something absolutely um, incredibly strange tattooed on your arm what would it be let us know 0818 96 96 96 or 0833 96 96 96 I can actually see method in his madness there because I'm always forgetting things like that but I'm not sure if I go and get a tattooed on my arm but what do the opinion line listeners think today now Antoinette Burke Mark's 15-year-old daughter Katie has cerebral palsy and she's had a dislocated hip since she was two and doctors here won't treat her because she's too weak and now Antoinette is looking at treatment outside of Ireland which will be really expensive. Antoinette, poor Katie, so long with this dislocated hip, she must be in absolute agony. Hi Fiona. Um, She is in pain but because um it's been going on so long she's actually used to the pain which is sad that is sad you know what I mean she actually knows now when she's going to fall Mm. and she can actually control the fall because she knows whatever feeling she gets in her hip when it goes she actually knows herself and she can actually control herself so she doesn't go like smack bang onto the floor yeah and Antoinette, when the doctors you know, say that they're afraid to treat her because she's too weak, um, like why, like, can she get this treatment outside of Ireland then? Well, I'm hoping she can. Um, we, um, she, when we spoke to Katie's pediatricians, mm. they said she was too weak. Right? Right. Now, what he actually said was um, that they could improve the cover on her hip her hip is dysplastic, which means the hip bone, the like the ball and socket, mm. is out, but it moves in and out, if you know what I mean. Right, okay. So what he did say was you can improve the cover, yeah. but it comes back to the weak muscles around her hip. Right, okay. Some of the muscles are tight and other, than, other ones of them are weak. Now... We got the same response when we were bringing Katie for SDR surgery. We were told she was too weak mm. to have that surgery. What's SDR Katie surgery? Went, oh, sorry. SDR is selective dorsal rhizotomy. Right, she yeah. had that surgery in 2014 in America. Oh, she had that in America. Okay. Yeah. Um, it is available in the UK, but there's a certain criteria okay. to get children sent to the UK. 
um, there's five levels of cerebral palsy. You have to be level three to be referred to the UK. Okay. Um, the doctors in the CRC in Dublin that never even saw Katie said she was level four. Okay. So we sent Katie's information off to Dr. Park in St. Louis Children's Hospital. And when he assessed her, he said she was level three. Okay. So we said, okay, we'll bring her to him. He was willing to do the surgery on her. Now, Katie went to America in a wheelchair. Katie walked back through Chicago Airport with walking canes. And to this day, Katie very, very, very rarely uses a wheelchair. It must have been remarkable for you, Antoinette, to see her walking through the airport like that. Do you know what? Honest to God, if somebody said to me, there's the the winning lot of numbers, I don't think I'd be as excited as I was seeing her walking for the first time. Mm -hmm. Like, she was seven when she took her first independent steps. Like, you know the excitement when your baby takes their first steps. I had to wait she was seven for that. And so are so, you hoping that this second surgery now will, like, what are you hoping that it's going to do? Well, what I'm hoping is that they'll be able to fix, like, put her hip back into place. Mm. Like, the, the, our paediatricians here, there is a surgery to do it. Mm. But as I said, they're saying she's too weak. Yeah, She's 15. They're now referring her on to an adult doctor in Dublin for his opinion on whether he'll operate on her. Right. But you know as well as I do the wait lists for to mm. see a doctor here. I can't wait that long for Katie anymore. It's not fair on her. She's suffering. Sorry. Yeah. It um, must be it must be so hard as her parent to see her suffering like that. It's killing me. It's absolutely killing me. Like I thought when we as I said when we brought her to St. Louis, she's up, she's walking. Mm-hmm. Like she walks around the house with nothing. No crutches, she can walk around her bare feet. No hassle. When she goes outside, she's still very nervous, obviously because of the uneven roads and uneven footpaths. Mm-hmm. So she uses crutches when she's outside. Now, if you saw Katie walking down the road, half the time she's walking with crutches up in the air. Mm. They're like a comfort blanket to her. She's afraid to let them go. You know what I mean? Because of her hip. Now, one of her legs is slightly longer than the other. Mm. So when Katie walks, as she says herself, she walks like a penguin. You know the way a penguin yeah. kind of waddles? Yeah. Well, that's the way she walks. We call her a little penguin. Yeah. Um, so when they said she was too weak, I just went, you know, I have to, I can't leave her like this anymore. It's not fair on her. So I actually contacted first the... Kingsbridge Hospital in Belfast mm. to see if we could do the cross-border treatment with her. Mm. But because she's a minor, they don't treat minors through okay. the cross-border. So I was like, okay, that's that one ruled out. Mm. I then heard about the hospital in Spain yeah. that's doing surgeries. Now I have contact, contacted them. I'm waiting on a response for them. I still haven't heard anything. And that's the hospital so, that does um, surgery for people who are on waiting lists here. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I still haven't heard that back from them. Okay. So I started 
looking forward to field to see what where else I could bring her. Now, one of the doctors, Katie, had two surgeries when she went to St. Louis the first time. The first one was SCR, and the second one was PECS, which actually lengthens the muscles Yeah, in her leg. Um, because she had a lot of, like, when Katie, before she had her surgery, Katie walked on her toes. So obviously all the muscles were tight. So they had to lengthen those muscles so she was actually able to put her foot to the floor and be able to walk. So... Dr. Dobbs, who did the second surgery, has moved to the Paley Institute. So I contacted him via Facebook Messenger. Him and Dr. Parker like, are always, like, you can send him a message still to this day and say to him, look, this is the problem I'm having. What's your opinion? And they'll give you their opinion. Yeah. So when I explained to Dr. Dobbs what was going on, he was shocked. He was like, he basically said to me, like, why do you leave now like this? Mm. So he just said to me, have you got a recent x-ray of Katie? I said, I do. So I sent it to him, as I said, via messenger. And just by him looking at that x-ray, he said, she needs hip surgery. So he gave me the contact details for the Paley Institute in Florida. Right. So I contacted them on the 6th of July this year. Received a reply from them on the 14th of July requesting Katie's information. And they've arranged a Zoom meeting with Dr. Paley on the 22nd of August. I have one this year. Okay. So if I had to wait here, mm. I don't know how long I'll be waiting to even speak to the doctor in, in Dublin or if he's even going to do what for her. And Antoinette, if you get the go-ahead to have this surgery in Florida, um, it's obviously going to be very costly because you have to pay for the surgery itself and for the flights and the accommodations. So you have set up a GoFundMe, but I think, have you stalled it at the minute? I have stalled it because there was a consultation fee of $750. Right. Um, I don't want to raise anything else until I know 110% that Dr. Paley will do something for her. There's no point in me saying, oh, I need X amount. I don't even know him, which I need yet, because yeah. he has to evaluate her, see exactly what needs to be done. Then he has to do his report up. He has to send it then to whoever sends the bills out, basically, and say, right, this is how much it's going to cost. Right. I don't know how much it's going to cost. You know what I mean? The last one cost was 60000 And that was just for um, the two surgeries, her hospital stay, um, equipment over there they gave her walking canes and they gave her new AFOs there's mm-hmm. splints so she wears on her legs um, like we um, there was actually kisses from Katie they're a charity based in America yeah but Alan is actually from Caroline and his mum heard heard his animal PJ and they actually paid for our accommodation when we were in St. Louis the last time. So we didn't have those overheads. Yeah. Uh, we paid for the flights ourselves. So basically all we fundraised for the last time was the cost of surgery and some aftercare because we didn't want to, to kind of take take advantage of people's kindness. Yeah, of course. You know, well, yeah. now... I'm literally in the same boat again. 
having to depend on, on people's kindness again if Katie's accepted. Yeah. To help us get her there. Like, believe me, this is the last thing I want to do. I know everybody is struggling. Oh, we're struggling. Yeah. Like. I know, Antoinette, and it's an awful situation that you're in. And can we keep in touch with you over the next couple of months? You said you'll know on August 22nd if it can go ahead and you'll probably have a better idea then of what kind oh, of class I know then. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, can I just say, like, when... Um, <laughs> I lost my fight a couple of years ago when Katie's dad died and I just I just I just couldn't fight for her anymore. Mm. But when we got involved with Fuss Ireland, this family support ne- network. Yeah. They've given me back my fight to be able to stand up for Katie. They've given me more support since last April than any of the services that are supposed to be looking after Katie have done. Like we, we as a parents have got together to fight for our children. Mm. We gave Michal Martin a letter outlining some of the children that are suffering. We're still waiting on a response off Michal Martin. He, he hasn't even acknowledged it. Well, he actually didn't even acknowledge the kids the day of the protest. He literally yeah. walked straight past them. Okay. Like, it doesn't matter what angle we, we go, we're just being ignored. Like, and, and it's not only Katie, it's every child with any sort of disability yeah. that's being ignored, that's suffering. And when it's getting to the stage that, that like parents like me have to take our children out of the country, something has to give. Something does have to give, Antoinette, definitely. Yeah, like we, we, yeah. can't just, we can't keep doing things like this and depending on the ordinary Joe soap Mm-hmm. to help us out. Like, the government should be stepping up and going, right, we know, well, they know there's a problem. Yeah. So, like, we just have to keep fighting for our children and this is this is the only way I can fight for Katie now. Okay. That she, that I can give her a life, like, a, a better life again. Antoinette, you're doing a, you're doing a magnificent job for your daughter Katie, and do keep in touch and let us know how we get on, and we'll definitely bring you back um, after August twenty second, and we find out what's happening. That's Antoinette Burke and her daughter Katie on the Opinion Line on Corks ninety six FM. For over thirty years, David Macdonald has worked in Ireland's biggest prisons. He started out in Mount Joy in nineteen eighty nine before moving to Portleash Prison, and due to the presence of IRA and other subversive prisoners. Was then, which was then the most secure prison in Europe. He then moved on to the new Midlands prison and um, here he dealt with notorious household names like John Gilligan, Christy Kinahan, Brian Meenan, Desi O'Hare and more recently killers like Graham Dwyer in his average working day. And now he's teamed up with award-winning examiner journalist Mick Clifford to bring to life a lot of the stories and a lot of the, the incidents that he's encountered during his time. And the book is called Unlocked. And David joins me now. Good morning. Good morning, Fiona. How Good are you? Morning, David. Um, Good morning, David. Unlocked an Irish prison officer's story by David MacDonald with Cliff uh, with Mick Clifford is published by Sandy Cove and is available in shops and online now. And it's an, a remarkable book of a, a remarkable life for yourself. Can I just ask you, first of all, David, why did you want to become a prison officer? 
My Fiona, I grew up in Portlaoise, um, literally 400 metres up from the Portlaoise prison, which was the only prison there at the time. The Midlands prison came along a lot later. Um, I went to school with prison officers' sons and daughters. I saw how they socialised with each other. I, you know, I was in contact with them and I used to pass that big building on a daily basis and I was very curious actually what went in behind the, on behind the walls. Mm. Back then, nobody spoke about the prison. It was very secretive. Uh, tensions were very high. We They had um, a large number of subversive prisoners, meaning IRA, INLA, and um, security was massive. And David, like the opening chapter of this book, um, it's um, an account of a riot threat that emerged in the Midlands prison when some of the most notorious prisoners in the state were threatening all out coordinated chaos unless you were transferred to another prison. (laughs) I mean, you know, people get stressed out about their jobs, but I mean, if you had that hanging over your head, I just don't know how anybody would cope. How did you cope with that? Um, Fiona, at that stage, I'd been a prison officer for quite some time, so you learn you learn your job um it can be difficult the people that are working today and tomorrow in, in the prison service prison officers they do a remarkable job under very stressful conditions at times mm. um in 2008 there was a unit set up called the operation support group osg for short and our job at that time was to break up gang activity within the prison estates and to stop contraband from entering prison mainly drugs phones shivs that type of thing. Um, I was an assistant chief officer at that stage and myself and my team had, uh, by 2013, had learned our craft very well and um, we had a very successful Christmas in stopping drugs and phones from entering the prison um, right up to nearly Christmas Day and this didn't sit well with some of the the gang leaders and um, just after Christmas then they decided the 150 of them would stay out in the landing and they were looking for one head and that head was mine um, I got information from the Gardaí in the Phoenix Park that they'd put a level five threat on me, which is the most serious one you could get. Mm-hmm. And um, so the idea was, look, it was intimidation. It was to try and get us to back down because drugs are a huge currency in a prison. And it, it, if they don't have those, they don't have power. And if they don't have phones, they can't run their little empires from inside the walls of the prison. Mm. So I just became not their most favoured person in the world. Um, I went off their Christmas card list and they were baying for my head. So it didn't stop us. It, actually, if anything else, what it proved to us, uh, Fiona, was that we were doing our job exceptionally well yeah. um, because of their reaction. So was we it, kept It must moving. have been really tough though, David, to come into work every day with a level five threat hanging over your head. <laughs> um, it, it, look, it... <laughs> you get on with it you know, it's mm. your job it's what you get paid to do I mean prison officer's job is extremely difficult but so again are people like ambulance drivers who go to the scene of accidents and have to witness and deal with horrific things same with fire brigade you get moulded you know I don't think anyone grows up and says I want to be a prison officer but when you join the prison service the job itself moulds you into that role of what you're what you're doing. Security is massive within a prison. So, you know, the safe custody and taking care of prisoners is also a huge part of it. But when we set up the OSG, we stopped massive amount of contraband entering the prisons. And, like, we were seeing some horrific things on it in the prisons. I mean, it's not a pretty sight to walk into a cell and see a prisoner that may have OD'd and mm. vomit and bowels emptied. And, and then the effects that on his family on the outside. Also, these gang leaders, because of 
the currency of drugs were also intimidating an awful lot of other prisoners, which was then feeding to their families on the outside. And they were being made to do horrible things to pay off maybe drug debts or use of mobile phones. And the OSG was very, very successful at curtailing a great deal of that. And David, this all happened, this level threat five happened when you were in Midlands prison. And as you said, you were well into your career at that stage. But one of the first jobs that you were ever given in Mount Joy was to supervise the prisoners coming out with their chamber pots full of urine in the morning to empty them into a big trough. I mean, like, it's just, it's unthinkable. Well, it's only actually in the very recent times, Fiona, that we've had in-cell sanitation in, in prison cells. Um, mm-hmm. Up to that, it was the chamber pot. And when you were a young officer, you got the harder or more nastier jobs. And one of them was to stand on the bottom of a landing, supervising prisoners at quarter past eight in the morning, as they'd all come down with their pots sometimes quite full and spilling and emptied into a big, um, what we call a sluice, mm-hmm. uh, which is a big basin sink, really. And um, the stench would have been rather unpleasant. Um, you always try to make sure that you didn't have a curry the night before because your tummy wouldn't just take it. And it wasn't, it, you know, things have improved massively since yeah. then, thankfully. But, and uh, did you think then, like so at that stage, um, you know, you were starting out in your career, you had watched with interest the prison growing up, you were wondering what was behind the walls. At that point, did you think, do you know what, I, I'm done, this is not for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that, no, not that was. Look, Fiona, I was very lucky. Um, I could have gone into the job and maybe vegetated on a gate for thirty years, but mm. I was very fortunate. I got moved around. I got promoted. I got to do a lot of interesting things. I worked with both managers that were very, very supportive um, at times, and I worked with made great friends and colleagues that I worked with. So I, I was very fortunate. Um, I didn't. The prison life could be quite boring um, if you. You know, if you just just sort of wanted to have a very quiet life, yeah. that would have driven me scatty, to be honest with you. So I was very lucky the way I got moved around. And a lot of this is then obviously in the book and the stories were there to tell. Mm. And then Mick Clifford is the guy who a lot of your listeners will know, didn't just put those words on paper. He actually will put the reader right in to the prison. You know, Mick came to me. We would have known each other while I was still working in the prison and we had built up a good friendship. And mm. when I retired, we decided to do this over COVID. And um, look, McClifford is, McClifford, he's just excellent at what he does. And yeah. he really gets the reader into the environment, into the sounds of the prison, what it smells like. And not just for the prisoners or the inmates, it's also for the prison officers who have to work in this environment every day. And the book is, of course, Unlocked, an Irish Prisoner's Officer's Story by David MacDonald and Mick Clifford. And one of the most harrowing chapters, I think, in this book is called Dead Men Walking. And it's when you were assigned to a segregated block for prisoners suffering from AIDS. That must have been a very frightening time. Um, It was, actually. um, And it was something that I had buried uh, in the deep corners of my head. I had actually, you know, put it to one side, as I think a lot of us have, have, have done, because it was quite difficult to live with or relive and it was already a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. In the book that this kind of had to come back out um, to the fore, um, Back then, it, AIDS was a death sentence. Um, you know, mm. um, stars had died from like Freddie Mercury, and um, once diagnosed with it, there was no cure back then. So the prison service had a knee-jerk reaction. Not entirely all their own fault, I have to say, but no one understood it. But their reaction was to segregate any prisoner that was tested positive for HIV. Unfortunately, what they did was they put these people into what I can only describe as a hellhole. It was called the Bee Basement. It mm. was under Bee Wing in Mount Joy. It had no natural light. Not that there was a whole lot of natural light in Mount Joy anyway, but this had less. Um, the cells were dingy. It was rodent infested, cockroaches, mice, all this, like, I mean, infested. Um, the cells were tiny. The exercise yard was tiny as well, surrounded by razor wire. Their visits were curtailed because of where they were located. Their food was served to them on paper plates. And again, was not good because of the distance it had to come. Everything was disposable. Everyone had a fear. There was a lot of myths around it. If someone spat at you, if you touched their sweat, if you drank from the same cup, you know, these were all the myths that surrounded HIV at the time. Mm. Um, I was a little bit more fortunate. My wife was a chief researcher and information officer for the HSE in the AIDS programme. So I was a bit more aware of what was real and what wasn't. And, um, you know, there's one part of that chapter where there's a story told where I'm handcuffed to a prisoner and I take him over to the Matter Hospital, which if anyone knows the North Circle Road, Mount Shai and the Matter Hospital are directly opposite each other. So we often would walk the prisoners over rather than use transport. And um, going into a, an office, I had two colleagues with me and the doctor came in. The doctor said to us, look, lads, I need to talk to this guy on my own. I was handcuffed to him. I, there was a window in the office. I turned to the two officers and nodded. They went outside the door. I turned to the prisoner and just said, look, you understand, I can't leave you. And he did. The doctor, in as kind of way as possible, um, give this guy the news that he had months to live. Um, mm. The consultation was finished. We went outside. We did a cigarette. We had a chat. And the prisoner just turned to me and in more colourful language than I can use on air, just said to me, I'm done for. Um and I didn't answer him, Fiona, because I didn't have an answer. Yeah. Um, talking to him, like he was, like I say, in his maybe 21, 22, but he had three kids, very young kids. Yeah. And 
I was bringing them back to this hellhole of the B base and putting them back in there. And sure enough, um, a couple of months later, he was transferred to a hospice, I think, in Blanchestown, where he died. And that was the fate for a lot of these people mm. that were incarcerated at the time. Um, I know that everyone that's inside the wall of a prison has done somebody somewhere harm, whether it be financial, physical, emotional, or maybe an awful lot worse. But the way we they were treated back then was horrific. And like David, just listening there to you, you obviously build up some sort of a relationship with the inmates. Um, and you had an encounter one time with one of, I suppose, one of the most notorious uh, prisoners in Ireland, John Gilligan, where he actually stood up for you. <laughs> he did. Um, he, he did. He did. No, look at. I'm, I'm saying this right open on air. John Gilligan is what he is. He's a thug. Yeah. But on one occasion, I found myself isolated on the end of what's called E1. I don't know if anyone ever took the trip from Dublin to Cork uh, back in the, before the bypass. Yeah. That big, great building that's there, that's the, called the E block. And on the ground floor was housed what's, what we term the heavies, which is the likes of John Gilligan, you know, me and uh, Dutchie Holland, people like that. And um, I got myself isolated. Um, there were trouble that broke out and I had no way off to land them. Um, a prisoner called Paul Ward uh, thought all his Christmases had come together mm. because Paul Ward was one of the prisoners that held five prison officers hostage for over five hours in Mount Joy mm. and they became known as defaulters and we dealt with them and the book goes into that in much better detail than I can explain on air. Um, so Paul Ward saw me, he had a shave and he was coming for me and Gilligan gave the order for him to stop. Uh, Ward didn't stop straight away and then Gilligan, a bit more forcefully, uh, gave a second roar and Ward stopped. Now, if Ward had come for me, he would have been joined by many others and I was in bother. Mm. Now, why Gilligan did it, I'm never going to be quite sure. Um, I wasn't friends with him. Um, uh, you don't become friends with prisoners, Fiona. There has to be the divide. You yeah. never become their friend. But I think it was more to show me that he had the power. He had power over the landing, if you like, mm. and that he could rule the roost. But, but he did save my bacon. Um, and as I said, I know exactly what John Gilligan is, is. Yeah. Another notorious prisoner is Brian Meehan. And you um, came across an incident where you were um, handcuffed to him. And of course, Brian Meehan was convicted of Veronica Gearan's murder. And um, you um, he, he, uh, he, he shook your hand after the death of your brother. Yeah, again, you see... Sometimes, Fiona, the, the bigger the criminal, the more they have a certain amount of intelligence. Like if people think that these are people are fools or just thugs alone, that's not what they are. They have um, they, they have a cleverness about them. And yes, my brother had, had been killed in a car accident on his way to Mount Joy. He was also a prison officer. And I had come back to work after the, his death. And I met Brian Mean, who came over to me and put out his hand and um, offered me his condolences. Um it was in vision of other prison officers and I was a bit wary because this is not the norm, really. Yeah. And he also basically said to me, look, it's, you're not going to get any hassle on the E1 London. Um, nobody's going to give you any grief. Um, this, you know, and he was quite nice about it. Yeah. So you get that side of human side to them as well. Now, again, I have to say, I know what Brian Mean did. The crime was horrific, killing a young mother. And Brian Mean is still today in Port Leach Prison. Mm. 
Another prisoner, of course, is Graham Dwyer, who um, people in Cork would have a particular interest in because he's from Bandon, and of course, he was convicted of the murder of Elaine O'Hara. Um, but, but you you described him as a model prisoner, and that some of your colleagues were even looking to him for advice on building extensions to their homes because he is an architect by trade. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, he was even had a, quite a high uh, public profile. He'd been on TV and other things. Mm. Look, Graham Dwyer is what you might call sweet. Um, like when I was in the Midlands prison and even today, there's approximately 850 prisoners in there. Um, at least a quarter, if not more, are in for one form or, or other of a sex offence mm. or a serious crime against females or youths. So Graham DeWire would be, um, he would be the sort of one that he wouldn't um, be violent to someone like me. To women, that could be a completely different story, but not to someone like me or some of my male colleagues. But he would come up and he would ask things in the most nice way. He would be sweet, very annoying, actually. He would be incredibly annoying because of the way he would be, you know, please this and please that and what have you. But, um, like, we kind of have a saying in the prison service, a good sheepdog would try to mind prisoners like that. He's not troublesome. Yeah. That doesn't um, say that we don't have an awful lot of prisoners that are extremely violent and are a handful to deal with. And the staff do an excellent job at managing those individuals as well on a daily basis. And David, um, later on in your career, you were recruited to the OSG, which is the Operational Support Group, and that was set up to stop the flow of contraband into the prisons. And I think it's one of the most entertaining chapters in the book because, you know, a lot of the stories that you tell are obviously very upsetting, but they're told in such a way that you see the funny side of things as well. And and, um, I suppose it was quite entertaining to find out how um, a lot of the contraband was brought into the prisons. Okay, we kind of have to treat it as a game and I'm not being flippant when I say that mm. because we they come up with a new way uh, to get contraband drugs for example into the prison we'd stop it they come up with another new way we'd stop it I mean there's again unfortunately because of the kind of content there's a lot of things that can't I can't say on air especially yeah. on you know, morning radio yes, it exactly. would not be good but I can give you an example of some of the simpler ways that they would have used I mean um, initially what they would have done was they were using we had drug dogs so they're called passive drug dogs that every visitor would have to go by and the dog if they picked up a scent the visitor would be brought into a, um, a search room and be given a further search and be put on a screen visit or asked ask them to reschedule their visit but basically they weren't going to have a normal visit so um, they were using baby's nappies a lot um, they would make sure the baby's nappies were soiled and they would put the drugs then into the, the poo and this was the disguise, the smell of the drugs from the drug dog. So when we realised this, we set up a room, made sure there was no cameras in it. One of our female officers would go into the room with the visitor who had the baby. We'd have a supply of nappies and we'd make them change the nappies. Mm. Um, with another incident where we had this guy who had been uh, hurt in a motorbike accident, he'd actually lost his leg. He was quite a young guy, but he would have had to go to um, rehab in Dunleary on a regular basis. Um, so he had a false leg and when he would go up there, prior to him going up, someone would go into the disabled toilet with a sanitary bin full of mobile phones, maybe up to 10, 12 mobile smartphones. Now, an ordinary 20 euro phone in a prison can fetch anything up to nearly 2,000 euros. Oh so God. a smartphone has massive value. Yeah. Um, and he'd go in, he'd take off his leg, he'd put the phones into his false leg, come back to the prison. Uh, so we learned about it through intelligence work and so we had to take his leg off him. Um, some of the more funny instance was uh, back in the day, hair extensions were very, very popular. And um, 
they were using the hair extensions to conceal drugs in the extension on the hair. So we used to make the ladies take off their hair extensions, put them into those trays they could see at the airport. Unfortunately, one couple, an elderly couple coming in behind, they were looked at the tray that we had just scalped lady and they got terribly panicked and thought, mother to God, what are they doing here? So are we, you know, it's, um, so some of them are quite funny and I look, a, a lot of them are more serious and the book yeah. describes it incredibly well, but I just can't, you can't uh, bring this out to an open air, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, if people want to hear more about what went on, they can, of course, read your book. It's Unlocked, an Irish Prison Officer's Story by David MacDonald with Mick Clifford. And it's published by Sandy Cove and is available in shops and online now. David, lovely talking to you. It's been a fascinating life that you've had. It's a great book. And thank you for joining us on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM this morning. We were speaking earlier about vaping and Dr. Garrett was telling me that a lot of people will use vaping to give up cigarettes and somebody has been in touch to say two of us are vaping over four years it's saving us over 150 euro a week and our health has improved the doctor you have on is spot on thank you for that also with regards to the bus connects brian has been in touch to say i went to bus connects in silver springs yesterday which isn't on a bus route and is as far away from the area the meeting was about why wasn't it held locally again brian that is a question that that a lot of people have asked along with why are they having the meetings during um, the end of July, beginning of August when people are away on holidays and about the time. So I think our local politicians have been putting a lot of these questions to them to try and get some answers as well as some um, you know, ideas that people have and fears that they have around the proposal. I have more comments on that and I will bring them to you shortly. But first I want to go to Orla Egan who is an LGBTQ plus histor- historian and she has um, put together um, the aspects of the rich and important history of the LGBT community in Cork and um, it's put together in an in a archive called the Cork LGBT Archive and she joins me now to talk about this. Orla, good morning. Good morning, Fiona. How are you doing? I'm very well, Orla. Um, as I said there, like the, the LGBT community in Cork has a rich and important history, yet it's often forgotten about and people can't access it. Is this the reason why you felt the need to put together the Cork LGBT archive? It is. I mean, I suppose I've been involved with the Cork LGBT community since the 1980s. So I knew that there was this really rich history of community development and organising and activism and involvement in social change, um, but that it was an invisible history, that it wasn't a history that we were reading about in our history books. And it also wasn't visible in the kind of few national accounts that we had around Irish LGBT history. So I wanted to make that history visible, make it uh, be something that people could access and um, bring it to life. So, you know, there I created the, the Cork LGBT archive to do that, to gather that history, to digitise it, to share it and to animate it. Um, so my voice is probably a bit hoarse this morning because I was animating it last night, leading a walking tour through the streets of Cork, you know, uh, talking about that history, do you know? Um, and, I and I suppose, suppose if you we know, go back, Orla, one of the, um, the first things to note is that the first Cork LGBT organisation was the Cork branch of the Irish gay rights movement. And that was set up back in 1975. It was in the mid-1970s. I mean, do you know, we can go back even further. We can go back to the 1600s when we had a woman in Yall called Florence Newton 
who was accused of bewitching another woman with her kiss. And the 1700s yeah. when we had Anne Bonny, a Cork pirate, um, who supposedly had a relationship with another woman. Yes, and well, then in the 1700s... Before actually, it was a very interesting call yeah. that we had. Yeah, yeah. And it's it is really interesting. And we also have um a Dr. James Barry, who is a transgender surgeon who we believe was born in Merchants Key in the 1700s um and worked as a military surgeon. So we have a long history of LGBT people. Um, but um it's the 1970s that we see the beginnings of community formation and social networks initially, people meeting in bars people's houses and then the mid-1970s that you had the first branch um, of an LGBT organisation, the Irish Gay Rights Movement, opening in Cork. And they were focused on kind of changing the law around criminalisation and removing prejudice. And we had our first Cork Gay Centre in Cork in 1976 in McCurtain Street, across the road from the guard station. Okay. And the first national gay conference was in 1981 then, was and that was in Cork as well, wasn't it? It was. And I think, you know, that's the thing that's really important to acknowledge. So many of the firsts of Irish national LGBT history happened in Cork. Hmm. And that's not regional history, that's national history. So the first National Gay Conference was held in Connolly Hall in 1981 and it brought together um, activists from all over Ireland, some international speakers, and there was a series of workshops at the conference and they passed motions which essentially set the agenda for LGBT activism in Ireland for the decades that followed. I mean, it was a really important conference. And also on the Saturday night of that conference, there was a a social held in Connolly Hall. And for Mm. a lot of people, that was really significant because it was one of the first times that you had same-sex couples dancing together in a public building in Cork. You know, so it was really, really important. And Orla, the uh, first Irish LGBT float ever was in the St. Patrick's Day Parade here in Cork in 1992. And like, do you know, 1992 is not that long ago. What was the reaction like? Can it's you remember not, what the reaction was like to that float? I, I do. I got hit in the head with a bottle, but it was what? a plastic bottle. Oh <laughs> you God. know, but yeah. I mean, I... I yeah, I think it's important to to note as well, like that was pre-decriminalisation. Uh, mm. um, and we organised the float in Cork in response to the fact that the Irish Lesbian and Gay Organisation were being banned from participating in the Paddy's Day parades in New York and in Boston. And, you know, there was this myth being propagated that you couldn't be Irish and queer. So we thought, wouldn't it show them if we did it in Cork? Hmm. So we started the um, the parade with a banner that said, Hello, New York, in acknowledgement of our, our colleagues in New York. And there was mixed reaction to it. You know, there was some stony faces, some silence. Like I said, I got hit in the head with a bottle, but mm. um, we also had people jumping up and down, shouting, you're gorgeous, well done. <laughs> and we won the prize for the best new entry that year. So wow. I think Cork really showed New York, you know, how to do it and how to be inclusive. And it was really important in terms of visibility for the community in Cork as well. Do you think, Orla, that the Cork LGBT archive, um, that it's, it's, it's teaching people a very important lesson even now? I mean, like, you know, you hear the reaction there, you got hit in the head with the bottle, but, you know, and now we have the Pride Parade and we seem to have come on so far, but there's still an element of um, bullying for people. And do you think now by reading, by bringing out this archive that there are important lessons to be learned? 
I think it's really important that people have a sense of their history and a sense as well of, you know, that recent social change has built on decades and decades of activism of people being brave and people demanding equality and respect. But I think it's also important to acknowledge that marriage equality didn't solve everything. Mm. That's not the be all and end all. And that there's still huge homophobia, transphobia, biphobia experienced by our school kids every single day in school, the issues around transphobia and some parts of the media trying to kind of promote kind of, you know, uh, negative attitudes and hatred Mm. towards the trans community. I think those issues are really, really live. And last night, like I said, I was leading a group of people through the streets of Cork and we're talking outside the um, other place, which was the LGBT community centre in the 1990s. And a couple of young fellows walk by and shout that they're homophobic to us. Right. And we were also standing next to where we had plaques on buildings throughout the city that were providing an interactive tour where people could scan codes to link to exhibits on the archive. Mm. And most of those have been pulled down around the city. So I think there's been huge change But like, you know, homophobia still exists. And Mm -hmm. I think there are a small number of people trying to fan transphobia in in our cities. And I think it's uh, it's really important that we're very clear about the fact that, you know, the trans community is very much part of our community, but also that we have a very long history of, you know, trans people being part of our community, of trans activism. The first transgender community um, organisations in Ireland were in 1976 in Dublin, the Friends of Eon organisation. So I think it is really important that we can refute some of the rubbish that has been spouted recently. Um, And also just have that sense of pride in ourselves and our community and how we have changed the lived realities for a lot of LGBT people in Ireland. Anora Egan, the Cork LGBT Archive is a really interesting body of work and well done to you for putting it all together. And as you said there, you were doing your historic walking tour um, yesterday evening as part of Cork Pride Week. And you've also been working on a film that you've brought out. It's I'm Here, I'm Home, I'm Happy. And that's going to be showing tomorrow night um, at the Gays Film Festival. Um, this film, it's, um, it's, it's sharing the positive side of the history and lively social scene of the Cork LGBT plus community, isn't it? It is. It's it's a deliberately positive film because I suppose I was I was conscious of that so many times people say to me, Oh my God, it must have been awful to be lesbian in Ireland in the nineteen eighties and mm. I'm going, No, it was great fun. There was such a sense of community and such vibrancy there. And I suppose I wanted to tell some of that story about what happened when people found community, when you found your tribe. But about the places where people gathered and met and, you know, just changed what it was like to be um, LGBT in a society that was quite negative about it. So I'm really delighted to have the film screening tomorrow. Um, we've also produced some DVDs, which we're going to be selling if people can access that on our website, CorkLGBTArchive.com. And I suppose just to say, Fiona, This work is done primarily on a voluntary basis. So, you know, we don't have any core funding. We get great funding in small grants from the Heritage Council, from Cork City Council Heritage Office, Cork Public Museum, um, are holding our physical collection. But as as an organisation, we have no core funding. So if there's any rich people out there who want to support this work, <laughs> we're always happy, happy to take it in. I have a fantasy about a, a you know an LGBT ch- version of Chuck Feeney who wants to come and support this work. Right. But 
I think it's really, really important. And seeing the response of the young LGBT people on the tour last night makes it worthwhile. Do you know? It does indeed. Orla Egan, thank you so much for joining us on the Opinion Line this morning. That's Orla Egan, LGBTQ plus um, historian, and she is the author of the Cork LGBT Archive. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818 96 96 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Now before I come to my next guest, I want to know what's your favourite tune to be played at a wedding. And I don't mean in uh, the ceremony part, I mean afterwards at the party. Uh, what a tune is bound to get you up on your feet dancing. There is a list of the top 40 wedding choices taken today from the Daily Mail and among them are I Got a Feeling by the Black Eyed Peas, Don't Stop Believing" by Journey, Mr. Brightside, The Killers, Living on a Prayer, Bon Jovi, Can't Stop the Feeling by Justin Timberlake, Robbie Williams, Let Me Entertain You, Beyonce, Single Ladies, Amy Winehouse, Valerie, Reach, S Club 7 and Proud Mary, Tina Turner. They're among the 40 and I will bring you the top five before the end of the show but I want to know what is going to get you up on the dance floor at a wedding let us know text or whatsapp 083 396 96 96 you might be surprised by some of the ones that are in the top five but we want to know yours and what's the tune that's going to get you on the dance floor at a wedding now Kale's Cole you're not going to be dancing at a wedding but you are taking place in some massive events that are happening over the next couple of weeks. Kale's Cole, of course, is a motorsport. Um, she, she drives racing cars for a living. Uh, she's a young girl from Ballincollig and she joins me now. Good morning, Kales. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. Kales, first of all, um, you have been, um, you, you spoke to PJ a number of years ago, I think, and you were only starting out in your career, but it has really taken off um, in the motorsport. Tell me about two of the events that you have coming up. Um, so I recently joined the F1000 series over in the UK and I've been racing around some iconic, famous tracks. Um, next weekend I'll be competing in the Service and Grand Prix track, so the track that takes place on F1 weekends. Um, Service in the car that I'll be racing, I'll be going around 150 miles per hour, so... It's going to be a really, really, you know, good experience going around there at that speed, I suppose. Have you ever done anything like that before? Have you ever gone at that speed before? Um, yeah, I started the F1000 series last year. Um, I competed in the full championship, just finding my feet as I used to race carts before. I've been racing carts for about five years now, but I made the bold move last year to compete in single series as that's the next part of my racing career. Um, and then this year I'm, I've continued to race in the championship, but this weekend coming I'm competing in a completely new championship called the Monoposto. Um, so I'll be competing on track against some, you know, iconic cars as well. I'll be racing against Formula 4 to Formula 3 and Formula 4 cars. So they've all been there before, so it's going to be a, a big challenge as I've only got two half an hour sessions to learn the track on Friday and then I'll be straight into qualifying. And that's amazing. Well done to you. It's great that you're um, that you've reached this stage of your career. What kind of training do you need to do to get to this stage, Kales? Um, I suppose what I do to prep before a race weekend, I you know learn the track you know on the simulator I have at home and 
you know, try and get as much track knowledge of the lines and how the track goes. And then I'd have to go to the gym then and, you know, prepare my upper body strength for, you know, the race weekend because I'd be on track for about 15 to 20 minutes for a race. So Mm. it takes a lot of, you know, people just think it's going around in circles sometimes, but there's a lot of prep you have to do to, you know, show your potential and, you know, your hard work on track. So, And Kate, I suppose a lot of it as well is um, a, a mental thing as well. You know, you have to be prepared for the different turns and, um, yeah, you know, do definitely. you have to do any kind of mental exercises? Um, I suppose I just like, you know, I obviously need a good night's sleep, you know, to be prepped for the morning, at morning of the race weekend, I suppose. But it's, yeah, you do have to be mentally, you know, prepared to go out on track. You can't go out, you know, you know, a bad head on you, I suppose, mm. you know, because if you go out with a bad head, you're not going to do as well and you won't be as prepared to, you know, go as fast as you can, I suppose, like that. But, um, yeah, you do have to definitely be mentally prepared. And Kales, how did you get into Formula One racing? Um, I started back in 2017. I competed at my local kart track, Watergrass Hill, and I started in go-karts. Um, uh, it was all for a bit of fun when I first started I wanted to just you know go on a family Sunday mm. um, and just spend it with my family and just you know it was all a bit of fun and then I'd done my first race in May 2017 and after that I just wanted to start competing and then 2019 I'd done very well in, in championships in Ireland and it took off from there I just wanted to make try and make a career out of it so and would there be many young women in that career um, there, when I first started, there wasn't much women in, especially in, in it, especially in Ireland. Um, but now it's taken off a lot. There's so many young girls coming up through the ranks, and you know, seeing like I'm 19 now. I started when I was 16, and I looked up to a few girls that you know were in the UK, and now there's girls that are looking up to me at like seven, eight, nine years old. So you know, that's really, really good to see girls wanting to do it as well. Um. But the series I'm racing in now, I'm the only female in it. So it's, wow. it, I, I love racing against and the, the bunch of lads I race against, you know, they're so welcoming in the series. And, you know, I'm glad I made the move for that series. Yeah, so they treat you well. They're not kind of saying, oh, you know, like we'll definitely beat you because you're a girl kind of thing. No, de- <laughs> no, definitely not. It's, the, the first day I went there, you know, they were, they were all so helpful. Like, like this year already we've had you know, a couple of bad runs um, due to the car, you know, not going right for us. And mm. the lads that I raced against just wanted me on track and they'd be up until 11, 12 o'clock at night helping my dad try to get the car prepped for the next morning. So, and these are guys that are racing against me. Like sometimes you think, you know, would they want not want me on track, but yeah. no, they're the most helpful people that I'm around. So, Fantastic. And Kills, you know, you're only 19 now. So where, and, and you're doing these two big races over the next um, two weeks. Like, what, where do you see yourself going with this? Um, my biggest aim um, so far now is to try and make the W Series. Um, it's an all-female grid and it lo- runs alongside the F1 grid. Hmm. Um, but obviously, to try and get there, I have to show results. And it's it's very hard at the moment to do that because, you know, funding plays a big part in motorsport and it's hard to fund most of the time. Um, you know, I we it's just me and my dad. We're a father and daughter team. It's always been like that, and it's very hard to fund it. So we spend most late nights, me and my dad, up at the yard, you know, prepping the cars. And I'm lucky that my dad and myself, you know, are somewhat mechanically minded to try and, you know, prep the carts and the cars and whenever we're racing, because mm. if I didn't have that, I wouldn't be this, as far as I am now. So. And do you have a sponsor? 
Um, I have two local sponsors. Actually, I have Lulu's Coffee Shop. There, he has a load of coffee pods, and he's mm. recently opening a cafe. And I have Chris Me Group. He does the health and safety training. So they've been really, really good to me for all this year, um, helping me, you know, get on track. But you know, there's always room, more room for sponsors on the car. You know, so. Absolutely. And how does Dad feel about you? Because, like, obviously he's very heavily involved and he's very proud, but he must um, he must have nerves of steel to watch his 19-year-old daughter going around the racing track at 150 yeah. miles an hour. Yeah, definitely. He, um, he's been there since day one, to be fair, my dad. He's, you know, he's been my mechanic since day one and we've always worked really, really well as a team. Mm. Um, obviously, the first race I done was around Silverstone again. I've done the national and the international, but I haven't done the... Grand Prix track yet, so that's why it's going to be a big weekend for us. Um, but yeah, no, he is. He's not. He. I can. I don't know if he's nervous. You know, from my eyes, because obviously I'm on the track racing. But mm. I think there has been a few tears in his eyes when he's seen me come down the pit lane straight. You know, he's probably never thought he's seen his daughter come down. You know, such a big track, and you know, it's probably one of the biggest tracks in the world. You know, yeah. you know, famous tracks in the world. So. And uh, like, did he? Was he interested in it before? Like, did he ever do it before? Yeah, um, he was always, you know, I was always brought up around motorsport as a, you know, as a young child. I would have always been on my dad's shoulders watching the rallying. We would have been brought up around the rallying. My my dad would have navigated for his brother. His brother would have been a rally driver, and my godfather would have been a British rally champion. So I've always been brought up around it. My dad was always in love with the sport, but when I wanted to start doing it, he was a bit shocked. He was like, "Wait, my daughter wants to start doing motorsport." So <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Kales, um, like, what kind of advice would you give? I know you're only 19 now, but for any, you said there that you know young girls are looking to you now as an inspiration. What kind of advice would you give to them if they are interested in getting into motorsport? Um, I suppose you know, obviously, little girls are looking up and they're probably thinking, you know, it, it is a male-dominated sport. There's you know more male people in it than there is female, and you know, there's nothing wrong with that either. You know, I when I first went into it, when I started carrying, it was. You know, I was like, oh, do I belong here? You know, because I was the only female. But, you know, once you gain your respect and, you know, you're just you're just one of them on track. Once the helmet goes on, you're the exact same. You're racing in a car and that's it. So I just say, you know, go for your dreams. And if you get there, you get there. And if you don't, just keep pushing. You know, there's fabulous advice. (laughs) No, I'm sure there's young people out there this like this weekend. I'll be going to Donning. Silverstone GP and there's many young kids that would sit there and you know want to even visit that track but Mm. I'm so lucky to be even competing on that so Well you deserve all your success and best of luck this weekend and with the the race at Donington as well Um, that's Kales Cole Motorsport um, is her her career and she's flying it here and uh, we're all very proud of her in Cork I am sure and we'll be rooting for her over the next couple of weeks as she takes part in the F1 Silverstone GP in England and then at Donington as well. Thank you for joining us on the Opinion Line this morning Kales and this bank holiday weekend Cork's 96FM is all about Indy. We're live from Independence Music and Arts Festival this Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Stay listening and following and follow our socials for updates and highlights from Independence all weekend long. We're live from Indy 22 Friday at 4pm right here on Cork's 96 FM and coming at shows coming live across the weekend from Independence will be on Friday from 4 to 8pm. You'll have the big drive home with the 
Lorraine. 8 to 12, we'll have the hit mix with Shane Books. Then on Saturday from 2 to 6, we'll have Darren and Demi. And 6 to 10 will be Club 96 with Emmett Dunlee. And then on Sunday from 6 to 8, we'll have Select Irish. And from 8 to 12 p.m., the hit mix with Shane Books. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 0818 96 96 96. On Cork's 96FM. Some more of the songs from that uh, list of the top 40 wedding choices. It's the songs that are going to guarantee you uh, will get up on the dance floor at a wedding. Dancing in the Moonlight by Top Loader. Night Fever by the Bee Gees. Um, I'm Still Standing by Elton John Believe by Cher How Will I Know by Whitney Houston and John says most played song at a wedding please release me and now John that's not the spirit (laughs) anybody else who has a song that just guarantees that they will get up on the dance floor at a wedding 0818 96 96 96 or 0833 96 96 96 and I will bring you the top five before the end of the show now if you are planning on doing up rooms in your house but you're a little bit unsure as to what's in trend and what's in seizing um, I'm joined now by Jerry O'Toole-Glynn of Jerry Designs she's an interior designer and she joins me now good morning Jerry. Good morning, Fiona. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. Thanks for joining us on the Opinion Line this morning, Jerry. Jerry, I know that colour trends change all the time. Like we went through, um, you know, a phase there where grey was everywhere. And I think now I've just been looking at some new houses and navy kitchens seems to be a big thing and green doors. So what are the, the colour trends of this year? Uh, it's interesting. Grey definitely had its day for mm-hmm. a long time. And I think a lot of people still have a lot of grey in their homes. But I certainly know that a lot of my clients are happy to see the back of grey. <laughs> um, it definitely had a really good, um, you know, a good trend there for a long time. So now what I'm seeing coming in a lot more is, yes, there's the statement coloured kitchens, like you've mentioned, so kind of deeper colours like inky blues are popular, like the navies you mentioned, or even off blacks on kitchens are mm. really popular. Um, those can be problematic themselves with um, scratching and, and for small hands in a busy house. Then the other thing that I'm seeing a lot of coming in, and a lot of grey fans, grey uh, colour fans won't like this, but browns. Browns are really becoming very big. And over in America, where they lead a lot of design trends, over in LA and New York, all kind of browny, earthy tones are really becoming very popular. So when I propose a lot of these to clients, they mm. get a bit of a shock because it feels a bit reminiscent of maybe 10 years ago. But yeah. That's yeah, I was just going to say that. I mean, when we, you know, you often see in old houses, um, you know, because I know even when we bought our house and it was an old house and there was brown curtains and brown carpet and the thought of going back to that uh, <laughs> is not very great. <laughs> but, um, do you know, I suppose there's different shades of brown as well. So it doesn't have to be dreary looking. This is the thing. And I suppose that's that's where you'd work with somebody that's good with colour because they'll have an understanding on how to mix lighter and darker shades. And obviously to keep it very modern feeling, but also timeless. Timelessness mm. is important. I think you want to, you know, you invest in painting your kitchen or your house and you don't want to have to change it for a long time. You want to get the wear out of it. So 
even it, like if you're nervous of using browns, you could bring it in in a little bit, um, like a really deep brownie color on an island can be lovely. Um, little introductions of maybe a brown picture frame, some brown in maybe even bronzy colored handles on the kitchen, just mm. little touches as an accent rather than it feeling all too very heavy because it would be if we've brown floor, brown walls, brown kitchen. It sounds very depressing. So <laughs> it has to be <laughs> it has to be done with caution. I suppose as well, there's um, a, a word of caution around using dark colours in a kitchen, because if you don't have a lot of natural light, it can look very, um, again, it can make the room look a bit smaller, can't it? And it can be quite depressing if, if everything is really dark and there's no not an awful lot of natural light coming in. Absolutely. And one thing I see a lot of in 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 Ireland is, you know, dark bathroom tiles. So somebody picks a really nice tile in a big, bright, vast showroom and they put the tile into their smaller little ensuite. Sometimes these don't have any natural light and they do it all over the floor, all over the walls. And it does become very heavy. Mm. And I think it's same with kitchens. Uh, we have obviously a big trend in Ireland of the big extensions with vaulted ceilings, lots of light, lots of space. But, um, you know, if you are doing a lot of taller cabinets and if they're in a very dark color, of course, it's going to feel heavier. But if that is really the trend you want to follow and you like darker colors, I think the key is to have a good amount of natural light. And if you don't have natural light to really work well um, on your lighting layers. So have good task lighting, have good ambient lighting make sure that your lighting really enhances the deeper colour that you've gone for. And Jerry, I suppose when you're starting out with a room, it's important to create a colour palette. But how do you go about that? So this one can be, sometimes I'll have clients come in to me and they're like, I love this fabric for my sofa, but maybe I shouldn't pick the sofa first that's the wrong way to do my color scheme mm. and actually like rules are there in my opinion to be broken always <laughs> yeah. and there's no hard and fast rules to get a, a, a color scheme but but I think for for a foolproof kind of way of somebody to build one themselves is maybe look for a really nice piece of art or a print that they really um, are drawn into the colors and pull those colors out into the room that can be a really good way of building a color scheme. So you might see a lighter color in the piece of art and that can be your main color. And then you might pull out, might have a little bit of blue, a little bit of orange. You can pull out those colors into the rooms, room as well. And that immediately gives you a color scheme. Um, also, just me- playing around with lighter and darker shades definitely helps. So mm. if you know you love green, maybe you have like a really, really deep um uh, khaki green on your sofa um, think of nature like nature's colour schemes um, there's greens and trees uh, autumnal colour palettes obviously you get great inspiration there um, you know there's actually colour inspiration everywhere mm. I've even, even seen a client you know pick up um, a packaging p- coffee cup and say oh I love this because they had like a really deep blue as the main colour and then yeah the logo on it was a really rusty orange and it was a really nice strong colour scheme so that set the colour scheme for her whole kitchen because she knew she liked that so 
Let's hope the cup yeah. doesn't break. <laughs> and yeah, so you can find like the colour um, inspiration from anywhere, really. Absolutely. And Jerry, I suppose a big thing as well at the minute is um, a lot of people go for that kind of industrial look where we see um, a lot of metals coming into a design. And I was looking at your Instagram, Jerry Designs, and you were talking about, uh, uh, you know, mixing metals. And I suppose it's something that a lot of people might be concerned about, you know, um, you know, you can't mix certain metals because they may not work. Yes. So this is a big one. Um, I think back in the day, if you decided in your home that you were having a brass light in your front hallway, well, then that meant that everything down to your handles, everything had to match. It was a very much a big faux pas to mix metals, whereas today we're a lot more organic and fluid about the whole thing. And in fact, it's much nicer and gives a much more layered um, feeling to your interior if you mix your metals. Um, that is said with the little caveat as well that maybe, you know, if you were doing, let's say, a chrome finish mirror in your bathroom that you don't put brass lights right beside it because they're not going to ma- match very well. Um, but I suppose in a kitchen, if you were doing like a nice brushed brass on handles, you could mix that with black. They, mm. they combine very well. Um, you could also do um, a bit of uh, bronze with brass is lovely as well. And bronze is like this browny kind of um, metal tone, which is lovely with any mm. type of brass. And then black is good with everything. So if you want to do black with a bit of nickel, uh, those work very well as well. I have a little uh, reel up on my Instagram about how to mix metals and that can be really useful if you feel like you're getting caught on on how to mix them. Um, I think as well, just be careful that they're not screaming at each other. So if you've a lot of shiny chrome in your kitchen that like your 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 main sink isn't brass because obviously that's going to feel out of place. It needs to have little nods throughout the room that gives harmony. Brilliant. Jerry, thank you so much for keeping us up to date there today on all of the different colour trends and creating a colour palette and mixing metals in your po- home. Hopefully our listeners will find that useful if they are um, planning on doing up any of the rooms in their house. That is Jerry O'Toole Glynn of Jerry Designs. And that does not make it onto the top 40 wedding choices that was put together here for the Daily Mail. Um, and some of our listeners, um, I've, a- I've been asking people for their the songs that get you up at a wedding that are guaranteed to get you up on the dance floor. Angela says, Morning Fiona, my get up and go song would be John Bon or would be Bon Jovi living on a prayer. Thank you, Angela. And that is on the list at number 13. Uh, Mick says, Alice by Smokey, guaranteed to get the place going. And that it is, Mick. Uh, anytime I've ever been at a wedding and that comes on, everybody gets up and dances. Joan says, Dancing Queen by ABBA. Cracking tune, Joan. Definitely guaranteed to get people up on the dance floor. Joy says, The Grease Mega Mix always gets everyone going and that it does it really does joy and Michelle this is lovely Need You 100% by Duke Jamont rocked our wedding kind of appropriate isn't it and it really is Michelle and she says to say hi to the other half Aidan love you much um, and there you go uh, hi Aidan uh, and congratulations if you're only newly married and best of luck with it all so anybody else who has um, a song that gets them up on the dance floor let us know 083 396 96 96 Now, um... 
the I was speaking there earlier on to Kale's Coyle and she is in motorsport and um, we often hear about women in sport and getting young women into sport and Emma Larkin has a new book out called Twin Power Throw In. Good morning Emma. Good morning, Fiona. Hi, thanks very much for having me on. You're you're most welcome, Emma. And I suppose the reason why I met, started off with the, the sports reference was because Twin Power Throw-In, um, the two main characters in this book include a boy and a girl who are Gaelic mad. So how important was it for you to have that female character in the book? Um, well, it was hugely important to me, Fiona. Um, it's kind of an integral part of the story, really. And I suppose the kind of the big part of it is that boys and girls, you know, be seen as equals, I suppose, on the pitch and in life. You know, that's a theme that's running through Twin Power. Um, I suppose kind of the first books I wrote were about Izzy, which was a female character playing sport. And um, on the back of the kind of success of those books, O'Brien Press approached me and asked me to pitch um, a book, which turned out to be Twin Power. Um, and what Michael O'Brien would have said to me, he said, was, can you can you have a male and a female lead character? So kind of as I was writing the proposal, then I realised the brilliance of his idea, you know, that I could show a boy and a girl and their gang of friends and that they all play football together. And that scene is completely normal, you know, that they're, they're just equal and there's mm. there's nothing about it, you know. So I just thought that was a lovely theme to have running through the book. Mm-hmm. And how important do you think it is to get young children involved in sports such as GAA? Oh, very important. I mean, I coach myself down here now in Kerry and... I mean, the team sports are lovely. And I mean, I suppose it's not for everyone and not everyone will keep playing a team mm. sport all their life, but it could point them in the direction of another sport, you know. And you know, they learn a lot along the way, you know, and they make, might make friends from schools that aren't their own. You know, that, you know, it's just, it's all life skills and kind of making friends and getting to know people, you know. So I know it's not for everyone, but I just think it's it's lovely thing to be involved in. It is. Mm-hmm. And like there's the whole community aspect around it as well, you know, that yeah. uh, mm-hmm. you go up even mm-hmm. for the parents standing on the sideline and they get to talk to yeah. other parents <laughs> <laughs> and, it, exactly. and it is great. I tell, yeah, yeah. When you I see, moved to Kerry, there was a huge way that I got to know people. I'm from Cork originally, but when I moved down here, when my son was playing GA, it's, yeah. it's where a load of my friendship started. You know, there really is that lovely aspect to it. Yeah. And like the book centres on parish rivals. Um, mm-hmm. And I suppose a lot of parishes can relate to that. And, you know, yeah. you were saying there that you moved down to Kerry. Yeah. So did you look to your local yeah. parish for inspiration for this book? Oh, definitely. I mean, um, our local GA club here is is St. Sennans, but there's another um, club nearby called Fenuig. And a lot of the boys and girls would go to school together, but they're playing on the opposite teams. Mm. Um, And then to add to the mix as well, there's a girls club, which is a kind of a combination of the two. So there's a lot of these kind of, you know, interwoven, you know, rivalries and things going on there. So, yeah, that was a huge inspiration, definitely, because I love the way they can be great buddies in school. And then they go out (laughs) on the pitch and they play a competitive (laughs) game, but they leave it there, you know, they know that that's that's what it is it's on the pitch and then they go back to school and they're great friends again so it's lovely to see and what kind of reaction did people have to the book then twin power throw in when they did they recognize themselves in the parish rivalries um, yeah, well, I, well, I was I was at pains to say that there was no one, you know, I didn't base a character on anyone in the book. Mm. Like, you know, it's kind of just a combination of my experiences <laughs> from, you know, going to matches and coaching and things like that. But I think a lot of people in rural settings would definitely identify with it. And, and in the cities as well, because the GA has great um, has great city clubs as well, you know. So, no, the reaction has been brilliant. It really has. Yeah. Fantastic. And um, Emma, you've written a number of books. Um, it's, it's the Izzy series. And Izzy, <laughs> you said that you felt the need to write these books when your own daughter began playing sport and you realised there were very little children's books aimed at young girls interested in sport um, mm-hmm. you know is um, so was Izzy 
um, you know, was she inspired by your daughter then? Kind of inspired by my daughter and the girls who I would have coached as well. I've been coaching with the club since the girls were under eight. Um, and I think just kind of when I was coaching them and around the same time, my daughter was starting to read books independently, you know, by herself. And it was when I was looking for a book for her about a topic that she enjoyed, football being a big one for her, I kind of realized that there's lots of books with boys on the cover playing sport, but very mm. few with girls and none that I could find about Gaelic games. So that was a huge inspiration. Um and then around the same time, I'd been looking, I'd been thinking about writing about my grandmother, um, Maureen Hennebury. Maureen Cashman was her maiden name. She played camogie for Cork. And I wanted to write about her, but didn't really know what to write. You know, would it be a blog post? What could it be? So it was, there was the kind of that, you know, that stereotypical light bulb moment when I said, you know, I could, maybe I could write a children's book here and kind of bring my grandmother into it. Um, she had a bracelet made of her All Ireland Camogie medals. So in the Izzy stories, the bracelet is kind of the magic adventure part of it. The bracelet brings her on the magic adventures. So it was kind of bringing my grandmother into it as a nod to her, you know, but um, but also creating a book for girls that they yeah. could see themselves on the cover as, you know, standing in Crow Park like Izzy, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So was, mm. so was your grandmother then an inspiration to you when you were growing up? Yeah, I mean, she definitely was. But the funny thing is, when we look back about it, you know, we just kind of took it as normal that Nana loved GA. Like, you know, she was always watching it and there was always Hurleys around. And Joe, you know, even when my eldest son was born, she was in her 80s. He'd have been her great grandson. And she took him out pucking around the back garden. And so we always just that was just Nana. And in hindsight, we should have asked her so much more. We, sh- You know, we didn't realise, I suppose, how big this was to play camogie for Cork. You know, we should have yeah. we should have asked her a lot more about it, really. Yeah. And I suppose, like, you know, um, it's timely that we're having this conversation this week after the mm. Cork camogie senior intermediates and under-16s mm-hmm. all made it through to the All-Ireland Finals. Um, yeah. And they're all flying it. So do you think that attitudes yep. toward girls in sports have changed since the time your grandmother was a star player? Like I do. I mean, I think there's always been a respect for women playing sport and especially in people who know sport. I think there's always been that respect that people know how hard they work. But I think it's becoming more mainstream now. I really do. I think, you know, that the media are doing a great job and you can watch so many women's sport on TV now on, on national TV here in Ireland and the radio stations like yourselves, everyone. It's really being pushed and it's great. Um. But I don't think we're there yet. I think we have to keep mm. going until to know that everyone knows the female sports stars as much as the male. And I think we're definitely getting there, you know, but, um, yeah. but we can't let up just yet. We have to keep going. <laughs> definitely. I suppose it's important to <laughs> note as well, the twin twin power throw in, it's not mm-hmm. just about mm-hmm. um, females in sport. It's, um, it's no. it, it appeals to everybody. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Boys and girls. And, and both have said, and I've been around to schools and libraries and they all enjoy it equally. Do you know, it's um, they really do. It's a gang of three boys and three girls are the main characters. And then there's the kind of the rival gang. And there's a bit of that kind of war of the buttons. If you remember that film, <laughs> yeah. that type rivalry between between the two gangs and the kind of the hijinks and the things like that. So, I mean, even if someone didn't wasn't big into football, I think you'd still enjoy it because, I mean, there's one or two chapters that are you know quite technical about matches, but the rest is very much just a gang of friends and what they get up to you know so mm. I think a lot of people would enjoy it yeah it's brilliant and it has a lovely mm. cover on it as well it's um yeah you know kind Lauren of like did that it's brilliant Lauren yeah. O'Neill mm. was it yeah yeah mm-hmm. and yeah. Uh, Emma just you have started working with children's books Ireland and you're trying mm-hmm. to promote um you know that every child is a reader that's the vision mm-hmm. um so yeah. you know how mm-hmm. important is it to get young children into reading books in particular 
Oh, I think it's just so, so important. Um, I mean, it's just it's just so enjoyable and it's really, it's kind of just something for kids that, you know, if you're having a bad day or anything, you can sit down and read your book and it just clears the mind. And I think it's just a lovely thing to have that released, you know, that you know you can pick up a book and read and was the educational aspect of it too but I mean it's it's just fun and just to what I'd always say is to find a book about something that you enjoy reading Joe and there's when kids are starting off find a topic that they like um yeah so I'm loving working for Children's Books Ireland I just started six weeks ago um the organization well, is going through a huge growth <laughs> yeah thank you it's um it's going through a huge growth period Joe and there's a fantastic team working there to you know what the vision is every child a reader so doing a lot of different initiatives um to bring the joy of reading across the country yeah Absolutely. so it's, it's great to be involved yeah mm-hmm. it is it's brilliant and mm-hmm. thank you for joining me on the opinion line this morning to talk about it and hopefully you know we can encourage more young people i think to do i think in general a lot of children do read and i think a lot of parents read to their children at night time as well and hopefully that continues and if you are looking for a book to read to your child or even if you want your child to to read their own book twin power throw in by emma larkin it's a it's a great story and thank you emma for joining us now earlier on um um, Mary was in touch and she was giving out about um, a woman who was on the news and she was complaining about the cost of transport in rural Ireland um, and she was saying that it was her choice to live there and Ed has been in touch since and he says living in a rural area you've got fuel costs septic tank maintenance, well maintenance, contributions to county council roads etc. When I built my house these offset any savings made living in an urban setting my mortgage is on par with any urban dwelling. The co- that comment doesn't make any sense. It's more expensive to live in the country. And this is coming from a city dweller for most of my life. Thank you for that, Ed. Um, and I did say that at the time that, you know, that there are a lot of other expenses that you probably wouldn't have if you were living in a city. Um, and I think that's what the comment or that's what the, the news item that Mary was referring to was, um, was, was highlighting that people in the country have a lot of expenses that maybe people in the city don't have. Keep your comments coming into us and I will bring you that top five of the top 40 wedding tunes um, in in a little bit just after the end of the show or just before the end of the show. This Thursday, July 28th until Saturday or until Sunday, July 31st, there will be a, a stage production at the Opera House, which it's thought was going to be the biggest stage production they've had in a long, long time. And it's a unique co-production between the Cork Opera House and the Everyman. And it's all Cork, um, Cork produced. And it is, of course, the opera Morrigan. And joining me now is Magella Culla, who is part of the cast of this huge production. Good morning Magella. Morning Fiona, how are you doing? I'm very well. Um, Preparations are well underway I'd imagine now for for Morrigan. Yeah it's got to the really exciting stage now because we're in costume and we have the orchestra in and we're running the opera so yeah it's all (laughs) systems go. It's a massive production Magella like there's all kinds of activities happening on stage there's you know there's battle scenes, soaring areas, duets, there's tender moments. It's an action-packed ensemble. You have no idea how <laughs> excited I am about this opera. Um, it, it really is one of the most fantastical things I've ever been in. And a thank you to the Arts Council who've thrown money at this so that uh, we can put it on. And the Cork Opera House, of course, in association with everyone, they've been amazing um, pu- pulling all the resources together because it is 
it's a mammoth task. It's huge, huge chorus. I am, you know, the cast is huge. Like you say, there it's it's kind of set in the Bronze Age, so we have those kind of costumes, um, those Viking kind of costumes, um, and everybody's carrying a sword, and and uh, usually before, and um, uh, you know, a show, you're warming up your voice and all the rest of it, but we actually have to practice. We have a fight scene call. Before yeah. every, before each of the shows, because so that we don't kill each other on stage. <laughs> Magella, the story of Morrigan, um, it's based on an Irish goddess. Tell me a little bit about her story. Yeah, well, it's amazing. I mean, um, John O'Brien and Aidan O'Donoghue who wrote this opera, and it was so lovely that they've brought a bit of Irish mythology to life, and it's based on the story of Deirdre and the Sons of Usna, or Deirdre of the Sorrows. So basically, this child Deirdre is born, um, and but the people say she's cursed. She'll be the most beautiful woman in the country, but she will be the cause of the deaths of thousands of people, and so it it that prophecy kind of comes true um but it's so yeah so the the morrigan there is the the goddess of i don't know death and destruction yeah, or something death and fate. Um, <laughs> this is it and so we you kind of have it's it's amazingly intricate on stage because you have the Morrigan is, is is this triumvirate of three so we have three people playing morrigan and, and that's Karen Underwood, singer Karen Underwood, dancer Ryan, uh, Sarah Ryan, and the extraordinary uh, little girl of Liv Amory Gregorio. And the three of them kind of weave themselves in and out of the story. Mm. And, you know, they, they, they're um, portending a bit of death or destruction. Or um, So the so the, the Deirdre, my character is Lowercom. I'm sort of Deirdre's guardian. And I... I, I plead her case as a baby for them not to kill her, basically. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, then I rear her and she's um, she's a high spirited young lassie. <laughs> um, so, but, but when she's 15, uh, the king who spared her life actually sees her and falls in love with her and then sends the son. He sends the sons of Usna to bring her to court so that he can marry her. But of course, she falls in love with Simon Morgan, who plays Nisha, who's um, one of the sons. And then this all spells disaster because they run away and the king is devastated and in his rage he starts killing everybody all over the country um, and so the, so that's pretty much the plot um, and everybody dies it's like a Quentin Tarantino <laughs> opera so, so Magella, everywhere Magella I mean if somebody was thinking oh, I, you know maybe opera is not my thing like it just sounds like there's so much going on on the stage that you couldn't help but be entertained by going to it. Yeah, I I do feel we are now. I mean, this is an opera. But you see, the word opera just is Italian for work. <laughs> so, um, I mean, operas it tends to have an awful lot of connotations. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so it feels. I, I I feel like I'm betraying my genre or something by not wanting to call it an opera. But mm. one of one of the um, one of the people who saw one of the rehearsals and was so excited by it came up to me at the uh, um, at, at the break and said oh my god I hope I haven't insulted John O'Brien and I said well what, why what did you say and he said because I said if Kate Bush had written an opera this is what it would be like <laughs> and I laughed because I said don't be ridiculous Kate Bush is amazing yeah and I, but I could I could see what he meant because 
There are two extraordinary percussionists on the stage, and um, Pat Lynch and Paddy Nolan, and and they've had to memorize the whole piece, and they're part of the action as well. So the, so there's you know bass drums and gongs and and marimbas and timpanis and cymbals, uh, and there it's it's very it's very loud. <laughs> there's a lot of clashing, <laughs> clashing. But the piece doesn't feel like a, any opera that I've ever been in in my whole entire life. Yeah. So it would be a great if if it would be a great introduction to opera actually because it's so exciting and there's so much going on and it's the music. Oh my God, Fiona, the music <laughs> is glorious. There, there's so many beautiful melodies and so it's it's sort of moving and exciting and romantic and and oh my God, the ca- the cast well. I I said to John, I I said I was going to say, God, you've cast this opera really well. But then I realised he actually wrote these roles for these specific singers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's sort of bringing out the best in everything. I mean, Kim Sheehan, who plays Deirdre, I have never heard her sounding better. And the sound is just so beautiful. Anyone who's there is going to completely fall in love with her straight away. Um, And our our tenor, Young Soo Young, uh, has this striking, amazing, powerful voice. So I I, honestly, it it feels like you're watching a movie when Mm. you're looking at it. And um, yeah. Oh, Magella, I can I, hear I, I, the I, excitement. You, I, think, I think you can guess. <laughs> I think you can guess that I am very excited about this piece. Oh, indeed. Yeah. And Magella, yeah. best to look with it. It sounds absolutely amazing. As I said, it's at Cork Opera House from Thursday the 28th of July to Sunday 31st of July. And for anybody who wants to go and see it, I mean, we can hear your excitement there, Magella. Best luck to you and all the cast. It's a massive production at the Opera House and a great evening of entertainment for anybody who's going to that. And we have been talking about about the tunes that are going to get you up and moving on the dance floor at a wedding. There was a top 40 compiled um, and it's in today's Daily Mail and I did bring you some of the ones that were on the list. We had Don't Stop Believing by Journey, Mr. Brightside by The Killers, I'm Still Standing by Elton John but I'm sure everybody wants to know what are the top five dance floor hits and at number five there is Mamma Mia by ABBA. At number four we have Happy by Pharrell Williams. At number three, there is Sweet Caroline by Neil Diamond. At number two, Don't Stop Me Now by Queen. And the number one song that gets everybody up and dancing, and I think one of our listeners um, said that it was their song choice as well, is of course Dancing Queen by ABBA. So if you are getting married over the next couple of weeks, maybe you'd want to tell your DJ to play uh, some of those. Mamma Mia by ABBA, Happy by Pharrell Williams, Sweet Caroline by Neil Diamond. Don't Stop Me Now by Queen and Dancing Queen by ABBA because they are guaranteed to get your dance floor full. Thank you to all of our guests today and to everyone who um, texted in with a comment or who rang in. I'll be back with you again tomorrow. Thanks, of course, as well to Fergal Barry, Richard Vickery and Wayne Hilton. Enjoy the rest of your day.